0: You're listening to TIP.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to our Wednesday release of the Investors Podcast where we're talking about Bitcoin. Today's guest is billionaire Michael Saylor. Michael is the founder and CEO of MicroStrategy, a business intelligence, mobile software, and cloud based service company. After graduating from MIT in 1987, Michael started the company and still holds a controlling share of the business. Michael made huge headlines in the past quarter when he decided to purchase $475 million worth of Bitcoin on the balance sheet of his company. Within only six weeks later, the value of the purchase had nearly doubled. Now, in the fourth quarter of 2020, Michael went out and issued $650 million worth of convertible notes. The reason why? You guessed it, to buy more Bitcoin. I've had a lot of conversations through the years with some really gifted investors, But being able to tap into Michael's thought process on what's happening right now is one of the most interesting conversations I've ever had. And for that reason, I'm calling this episode a masterclass in economic calculation with Michael Saylor. I hope you enjoy.
0: You're listening to Bitcoin Fundamentals by The Investor's Podcast Network. Now for your host, Preston Pish.
1: All right, I'm here with the one and only Michael Saylor. Michael, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Preston. Hey, so
1: I when I'm listening to some of your other interviews, and the the one thing that really sticks out to me that I think is such an important conversation for people to, to really understand is some of your comments around inflation, risk premiums, the impact that this has as you think about it from a business owner. And the hurdle rate that you've got to achieve, talk to us in depth, don't hold anything back on this particular topic, and teach people how you're thinking about things from an economic calculation standpoint as the CEO, the founder of a billion dollar company
2: Okay, look, I, I think we start with this premise of, of your CEO, your job is to preserve shareholder value, you know pre- preserve wealth. That, it's the same challenge you'd have if you ran a family office and, and you, were, you were responsible for the wealth of the family. The question is, how do I preserve the value of my individual treasury or corporate treasury over time? Um, so let's say I have a million dollars. So in a hard money environment, if the currency is, is utterly deflationary, if the, if, if the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank was going to print no more currency for the next decade, then uh, I've got a million dollars. Next year, I'll have a million dollars. If I'm looking at um, the value of my cash, my million dollars, I can presumably have it sit in an account. And a decade from now, I'll still have a million dollars of purchasing power because the currency is not being uh, devalued. Now, if, uh, if the goods and services in the economy are growing at 2% a year and the currency is flat, then a fixed amount of currency is going to be chasing after <coughs> uh, an increasing amount of goods and services. You know? in, in that particular case, uh, the currency is going to appreciate in value. And so the prices are going to fall. And uh, so that's a, a good thing. It means that um, all I have to do is just sit on the money and wait, and the economy will be larger, the value of my treasury will accrete. If, if um, the banks print 2% more currency and the economy grows 2%, then you've got a net uh, equivalence uh, the value of my treasury won't accrete, but it won't dilute, right? So in theory, if you think about the, the, the good old days of the gold standard, if gold has a stock to flow of 50, then it's, uh, it's inflating at 2% a year. And traditionally, the economy of the world and the economy of most large countries grows about 2% a year. And so there's, there, it's kind of ironic that the 2% gold inflation is offset by the 2% economic expansion and you have a stable gold dollar or a stable uh, amount of value. And, uh, and over time, uh, that kind of makes sense. So what happens when I start to increase the currency, if I increase the currency 5% a year Well, uh, now will the economy grow 5% a year? If the economy grows 0% a year, the currency increases 5% a year, then I've got more money, uh, chasing after a fixed amount of products. Therefore, the price of the products have to keep going up and they're going to go up five per the, the stuff that you're wanting to get the scarce stuff. Um, Something that you can manufacture infinite supply of, like a copy of a Picasso, a digital copy of a Picasso, that's not going to inflate. But the actual Picasso is going to inflate to the extent that everybody in the society wants that one painting. Uh, And of course, what you see is that as you start to print more money, inflation uh, is not distributed equally. There's not really a single inflation number. There's a vector. Of inflation. In fact, I can come up with this set of products. You really need linear algebra. You need a vector math to describe this. One set of products that are information rich with no variable cost, like a digital copy of a Picasso. And there used to be a million digital copies, and now there are a billion digital copies. And even if I print a gazillion percent inflated currency, <laughs> the billionth the digital copy of the Picasso is not going to be any more expensive. In fact, what's going to happen in, uh, with a certain bucket of, of goods that are high, inflation, high, high information content is they're just going to get cheaper over time. They're deflationary products. And, and what's a good example of that? Um, digital music, digital video, digital photos, digital services, running on networks, that have a fixed price, a fixed cost. Once you've actually paid to deploy Wi-Fi and LTE networks, and once you've built the routers, and once you've built the electrical power plants, and once you've run all the fiber optic cable, that's all the fixed cost. The variable cost of deploying a Netflix movie to a million people is the cost of electricity. And deploying the Netflix movie to a billion people is the variable amount of electricity, right? So in essence, that's got to be like 0.1% variable cost. There is no variable cost. There's no energy content in the product. That is say, oh, I mean, the the perversity, right, is that it's all energy. It's 0.1% of the value of the product is energy. (laughs) I'm just shipping electrons and energy. It's fairly cheap. So... With things like that, they're deflationary because the fixed cost was, uh, is a sunk cost, which is amortized across all of the products. You've got one iPhone, you've got one television, you've got one fiber optic cable to your house. Uh, and therefore, everything I can push to the iPhone and everything I can push down the fiber optic cable I can deliver at the variable cost of electricity, which gets, which starts to look like a, a product with a 99.9% gross margin. Okay, so what's interesting? Well, in the history of the world, if you roll the clock back 50 years, we didn't have any products with a 99.9% gross margin. 99% gross margin products are a product of modern digital networks. So Apple… Created a mobile network, they dematerialized everything you could hold in your hand. And that means that your VCR and your CDs and your cameras and your Polaroid photos, right? And your phones and your tape recorders, uh, you know, and your weather, your, your Atlas and your maps and little books and reminders and yellow post it notes. All these things had energy content in them and they had a variable cost. I mean, traditionally, variable costs run anywhere from 40 to 60% of the value of the product. You know, you're like you have to produce it for 60% of the, of the retail value and you sell it down a retail distribution channel. And uh, eventually the true margin is like 7% or, you know, Walmart, 3%, whatever it is. And the other 97% gets eaten up that's what the world looked like. And then what happened with the mobile wave over the last decade is Apple dematerialized all of the, the mobile products or all the handheld products and converted them from 40 to 6% variable cost to 1% variable cost. And Apple then uh, accrued a trillion dollars of value because it was that network. It's crystallization and of sorts. You're collapsing from a high energy state to a lower energy state, and when you crystallize, what uh, energy gets given off, right? And that energy took the form of wealth created for the Apple shareholders. Google did the same thing; they pretty much dematerialized every library and every piece of inf- every book and every piece of information and every video and every home video and every VHS and all the music on the earth, and it collapsed into Google and YouTube and the like. And as it collapsed, right. Like I, this is a real library behind me. Okay. I'm sitting in a library of books and it, I don't know, it's a hundred thousand dollars worth of books in this room. Worthless (laughs) because, because you go get yourself a $500 iPad and you can have the entire hundred thousand books. And by the way, the hundred thousand books on the iPad is more valuable because they'll read themselves to you and you can resize the font. I'll walk past like this perfect, book. And it's a beautiful book. And I open it up and, you know, it's classic. And it's like in a really small font. And I'm like, I, can't I pinch and zoom the book? And then I go on a trip and I'm like, I really want to take that book or those 10 books. They're really heavy. I leave, you know, the books have mass, the books are static. The books have to be shelved. You know, someone can take the book. I might lose the book. Google took every library on earth, collapsed it, just like Apple's got their iBooks, right? They collapse these things. The variable cost goes to zero. So you have have all these things that Google touched that became deflationary. Everything that Facebook touched became deflationary. Everything that Amazon touched. The part that Amazon eliminated, by the way, was like the 40% of the retail supply chain that was the storefront (laughs) Well, 40% of everything anybody wanted to buy collapsed into a mobile app on an iPhone or collapsed into a website. 40% of the cost of the, of the energy cost and the, you know, it's, a, you know, conservation of mass and energy, right? That's, that's thermodynamics. Well, every product you buy, it either has mass, right? Like the books have mass or it has energy. I had to deliver the comic book to the newsstand. And I had to, uh, some, or pay, I was a paper boy, right? Preston. I was a paper boy growing up. And I, sometimes I fall into that. Like, what about the paper? Boy? And then I there's, there's probably no paper boys left on the planet. That's not a job anymore. Like who would deliver a, a paper. If I deliver a paper, you've got the mass and that's the paper that, you know, Paper is made of titanium, by the way. Titanium dioxide is the primary element in paper. It's no pacifier. I got my start in business studying titanium. It's heavy. I remember carrying stacks of papers around. You know, it's like 100 pounds worth of information it had to move through the supply chain. And then there's the energy, mass and energy. The energy was like me with my red wagon hauling a hundred pounds of papers on a Sunday morning through the neighborhood in the freezing snow. And you got to, you know, and at some point my angelic mother at getting up at 5. AM to drive the family station wagon, keeping the heat on while I, you know, while I haul papers through the neighborhood, I, I delivered them by the way on Wright Patterson air force base where I grew up, I know every single street because I had to get up and deliver a two-pound paper to every house across the entire military base when when it was like twenty below zero. So mass and energy in the news business. I expended the energy, I hauled the mass around. It was quite visceral. It was expensive. It's so expensive, by the way, that no newspaper could afford to hire an adult to do it. Hence 12-year-old to 18-year-old high school kids hauling newspapers around on their backs. That was the world that we used to live in. And of course, now it's kind of laughable. No one's going to haul that stuff. Yeah, you probably couldn't get a 12-year-old to get up during. I remember a blizzard. It got to like, it was 60 below zero, Preston. And we're trying to figure out how to deliver newspapers (laughs) on a Sunday morning at 5 a.m. The wind is blowing.
1: And on the Air Force Base, you had a lot of traffic to contend with at 5 a.m., unlike other
2: places. (laughs) (sighs) Mass and energy. So Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple, they dematerialize the mass and the energy from the products. All the products are information and electricity. And that explains why they're trillion-dollar companies, and that explains why inflation, as a metric, doesn't work. It might, you know, it's a it's a twentieth-century idea, and it might have almost. But, but I'm not sure it ever worked, but it wasn't hideously misleading until the last decade. And the last decade. We got to the point where half of everything you're you're consuming is pure information with no variable cost. So when
1: you say it, it's it's been a hideous metric, you're specifically talking about CPI, right? You're, I am. Yeah. You're, you're saying CPI is just not something that can actually measure what that what in the world's going on right now.
2: I I'd say it's it's a metaphysical metric. It, it has no relation to reality. It's it's. 's been def- it's been defined almost almost specifically cherry-picked to define to, and define in such a way that there will never be any inflation. And, and, and so the first irony is we've defi- decided that inflation is a bad thing and the second decision is we've decided that inflation equals CPI. And the third, you know irony is we can't find any inflation. but of course, in order to really understand store of value, in order to, in order to get to the bottom of, an, of, of investment uh, rationale and make rational investment decisions, you have to first go to first principles. And, and, and what I find is 95% of macroeconomists and analysts and, and the, the traditional investment community they they rely upon uh, metaphysical abstractions that they learned early in their career, or that are repeated to them over and over again by mainstream media. And because they just repeat these metaphysical abstractions long enough, they kind of convince themselves that there's some veracity to them, and there isn't any veracity to them. But they but the difference. And, I, and this takes me back to MIT. At MIT. They taught you to think for yourself. You're an engineer. If you're trying to solve a problem, you're expected to think for yourself. Like, for example, the first class I walked into, it was a class in um, material science. The professor walked out to all the freshmen. It was our first week at MIT. He said, this is a tile from the space shuttle. It burned off the space shuttle on reentry. Nobody at NASA knows why it burned off. They're not sure what to do about it, but they're afraid the space shuttle is going to blow up if they don't actually solve the problem. Why do you think it burned off? And what do you think the solution is? And he looks at it. These are 18 year old freshmen that showed up to school and you can see everybody's looking at each other. Like, is there some reading that we missed before <laughs> this lecture? And, and then they're thinking, I, I didn't read the answer to the question. And then there's this horrifying realization that a guy with a phd with 20 years experience just asked you a question that nobody on earth knows the answer to and he expects you to think for yourself and reason from first principles and solve the problem <laughs> you know that's the scientific way and there's not a lot of science and there's not a lot of engineering in the modern macro macroeconomic Uh, landscape or with mainstream media. They just repeat tropes over and over again as though they're meaningful and they're not. Let's take a quick break
0: and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. And how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show.
1: I mean, you couldn't provide a better example for what we're seeing right now from an economic standpoint. It's almost like we're seeing parts of this shuttle, call it the economic machine that we're looking at, literally falling falling apart right in front of our eyes. And you still have Many academics with PhDs going on C N B C and talking about, well, you know, our, we, we just don't have any inflation and and these types of things. So this is this is what I would frame it for you. How would you, Michael Saylor, define inflation today? Because you you still have to do economic calculation as a as a as a business owner. How are you looking at inflation, and how are you saying, well, I think if inflation's this, that's my hurdle rate plus whatever risk premium. Talk us through how you would define it, considering cPI is so broke
2: i i think I think the way you define inflation is the rate of price appreciation in a in a basket of goods, services, or assets that you wish that you desire to acquire in the future. So um, if you live with your parents in the basement of their house and um, you don't need a house and you don't aspire to a yacht, a plane, a beachfront uh, property, if you, don't asp- and if you don't intend to ever pay for electricity or utilities, if you borrow your dad's car and if your mom cooks for you, and you sleep in the basement, you're going to define inflation as the cost of beer, good weed, (laughs) Netflix, YouTube, I don't know, Tinder, like uh, whatever, whatever you're going to do when you take girls out on a date, right? That's That's inflation. That market basket of things that you're going to have to pay for out of your pocket is inflation to you. If your father kicks you out of the basement and says it's time for you to grow up and get your own place and get your own car, you're going to define inflation as the cost of a car, the cost of an apartment, the cost of food, the cost of the electrical utilities, right? And, you know, and anything else that's discretionary, and you have to embrace food and energy and uh, apartment. If you actually aspire to get uh, a PhD, or be a medical doctor, or whatever that might be, you're going to have to include in your inflation definition the cost of um, college education, medical school, etc., and and a higher education. If you imagine having perfect health, then inflation won't include medical care. If you imagine that you may, might actually need, uh, maybe you need your your teeth fixed. By the way, you know, like Preston, I grew up on an Air Force base. Uh, dentistry and, and, uh, and health care were free. They were, I was a dependent. My father was an NCO. I, you know, I needed to go to the, to the hospital. I went to the hospital on the base. Everything was free. Didn't really think about it. Um, then there was an, then, then we went through this period where there's health insurance and you, and you just went in network and everything got paid for it. I have noticed in the past 10 years, Preston, that none of the doctors I go to and none of the dentists I go to accept any of my health insurance and I have really good health insurance. I have like world-class health insurance, but every place I go, it's like if I really want if I want uh, good uh good healthcare or good dentistry, they ask me to give them their credit card, a credit card and I end up actually with a very large bill you know, from, from all of these doctors, you know, because they don't expect, they don't accept that insurance. So the insurance line pays for half. And so if you actually want the best medical care, you know, it could be 20 in perfect health. If you want your teeth fixed or you want, you know, whatever, you need the best medical care, then you got to throw dentistry and doctors not in your insurance network into the inflation calculation if you get to the point where you're 60 and you've, you know, you've got some medical conditions, you're going to throw all of those uh, more expensive treatments. You know, I, I uh, once I dislocated my shoulder and uh, you know, it was a silly accident. Like I tripped on a wet floor while I had my hands full and I landed and it was, it hurt more than anything in my entire life. So I went to, I went to the, to the hospital. They reset the shoulder after a while. Then I went to an orthopedist and the guy looks at me and he goes, I, I said, well, so what do you, what do you, how long will it take before I get this cast off or this, this sling off? Cause I, you know, I'd Googled, it was like a week or something. He goes, oh no, uh, we need to operate on you. I said, huh? I, he goes, well, you know, you're a perfect candidate, uh, you know, to have, you know, some shoulder surgery, you know, it, we should just fix it perfectly. It's like fifty thousand dollars. He goes, "You're a perfect candidate for this. I was a perfect candidate because I could afford to pay the fifty thousand dollars." Yeah. Or, or I. By the way, and I said, "No, I'll let it heal. It healed just fine. I'm not gonna. It's my left shoulder. I'm not pitching. You know, as a baseball pitcher, I don't really need the fifty thousand dollar operation, the six month recovery, and the potential infection and and the rest." But, you know, the best medical care was going to be extended to me because I could afford to pay the $50,000. So if you're defining inflation, do you want really good medical care? Do you want your teeth fixed? Do you want a ceramic crown? Right. Do you want, you know, silver in those fillings? Do you want it same day? You know, what quality of medical care do you want? Uh, The inflation rate's going to go up, I guarantee you. Do you want to go to Harvard or MIT? They're not going up at 2% a year. I know they're going up 7% a year, 8% a year. Now, those are, there, there's a market basket of, of products that if you sleep in your parents' basement that will be deflationary, you can probably live fairly cheap. Uber is not going to go up that much. There's another market basket. If you're going to live on your own, it's going to go up faster. It's probably, you know, X percent, 3 4 5%. The Chapwood Index starts to indicate, what if you actually aspire to own your own house? Well, if you wanted to own your own house, you know, housing prices have been going up for four, five, 6%, 7% a year sometimes. So that inflation rate would look different because, because that's an asset. Of course, CPI doesn't include assets. Now the question is, where do you want to live? The inflation rate of real estate in my hometown uh, Fairborn, Ohio is not nearly as high as the inflation rate of real estate in Miami Beach or the Hamptons or New York City, Manhattan. It turns out that uh, there's a differential. Now, why is there a differential? Because the assets are scarcer or uh, the thing that causes price to go up is it's scarce and it's desirable, right? The, and so you can't really come up with one, one price of, of real estate inflation in the United States because there's a lot of land in Kansas. And if what, you, what you aspire to is five acres of property and a nice house in Kansas. That's not going to inflate at the same rate as aspiring to a 4,000 square foot apartment in New York City. You can
1: just look at the prices in Jackson Hole and- I know the first time I went out there and looked at the prices for real estate, I said, why is everything so expensive? Well, then once you realize that the land out there is super scarce because you have all these state parks and everything surrounding it that have created this, this island of, of land that's available, you can see why the prices are sky high and because it's scarce. It's, now, when you're talking about real estate and you're talking about the inflation associated with it, let's go into equities. Let's go into fixed income and talk about how this quote unquote inflation is impacting securities.
2: Yeah. So if I want to live on my own as a single person, I want to rent an apartment and my market basket is food and energy and, uh, and a nice apartment and a car. If I, if I want... To have a family and own my own home, my market basket evolves to be a lot more family health care, higher education for my kids, more land for everybody to, you know, play behind the house, a house, real estate, property taxes, more utilities, appliances, uh, and, uh, you know, and maybe family vacations, Right and the like. So that's a different market basket for the, for the middle-class family. Um, If, uh, if I want um, to be uh, wealthy, then my market basket that I aspire to is, is uh, a very nice, uh, an elegant estate in the country or beachfront property in a hip, cool town like Miami Beach or Southampton or 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 the or Malibu, right? That becomes a different market basket. And of course, you know, a home in LA in Hollywood Hills, that's a different inflation rate. If I want to be really rich, what what uh what do the wealthy aspire to? Well they're aspiring to own Apple stock. They want to own stock bonds Realist, commercial real estate, uh, you want to own uh, things that produce income. So what's the cost to buy a basket of shares in Apple that produce a million dollars a year in dividends? Well, that cost doubled in 12 weeks, 100% inflation in 12 weeks this year the the uh, dividend didn't double, the price of the share doubled. Therefore, hyperinflation in a market basket of stocks. In fact, the S&P, uh, if we look at the S&P index, one of the most interesting metrics is the number of hours that you have to work in order to buy a share in the S&P. Right? And, and we see that chart and that's doubled, right? That's shooting up. Um, I've... Uh, you know, what, what do the wealthy want? Well, they want to buy real estate in Manhattan or Tokyo or London. Um, they want to buy, um, they want to buy uh, dividend producing or income producing assets. They, they either want to buy rent producing real estate, or they want bonds that will, that will produce a good coupon, or they want stocks that either will produce dividends or will buy back shares so that they're inherently deflationary or they will grow, right? Or they uh, they want scarce, they want to buy Picassos, they want art. Or by the way, or they want to buy franchises. I would like to buy, you know, the Jets. I would like to buy a football team. I would like to buy a baseball team. That's what really wealthy people wish to do. Or they wish to buy Jets or they wish to buy yachts, right? none of these things are in the CPI basket. I mean, the presumption, of course, is that uh, politicians have assumed that no one wants to be wealthy. Huh? Let me say that again. Politicians have assumed no one wants to be wealthy. I guess if you assume no one wants to be wealthy, and if you track the things that don't, that the wealthy people don't aspire to, then you won't Find inflation, and then you won't have a problem. Don't as you long think as you, we agree that no one can be wealthy, don't right? You You're think, never going to get there. Don't you think that that's
1: a little bit more out of convenience for the fiscal spending that aggressively has become more and more uh, aggressive that it complements their ability to continue to spend and obligate dollars and try to push some of those dollars into into their regions that they're elected and so well, by having by using CPI and pushing it lower and lower they can just reduce that that interest payment and and obligate even more funds of taxpayer dollars
2: i, I think as long as you define the metric as CPI and as long as you leave out every scarce asset every financial asset, food and energy, then you can lock on to a basket of goods that are inherently deflationary. You will never get inflation. Therefore, there will be no check on your ability to keep printing money. And if you, when you print money, if you call it accommodation, we're, accom- we're providing $120 billion a month of accommodation to make the markets fluid. You know to to keep them functioning right then you don't have to say we're um devaluing the money by hundred and twenty billion dollars a month and uh I think that's um that's a it's a it's a convenient thing at, at the point that we redefine the market basket as assets, well we would have immediate inflation and there would be immediate check and balance on the ability of any central bank or any bank to uh to create, uh, to devalue the currency. And so I don't think anybody wants to have a check on their, on their abilities. So, so uh, this has been adopted as a metric, the mainstream media um, promulgates the metric. And then uh, I I know why, uh, I, I know why someone running a, a central bank would want to focus on the metric. I just think it's uh, it's irrational for macroeconomic analysts and investors to fixate on the metric. And so, for example, if you're if you're defining a macroeconomic model that 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 uh, has CPI as an input, you're just engaging in metaphysical musing that that is increasingly uh, disconnected from reality. But let's come back to this uh, inflation definition. So. I think that you can define um, you can define a bunch of buckets, and it all the definition of inflation comes down to what are your what's your aspiration. If your aspiration is to be uh, is to be uh, a billionaire, then the definition of inflation is the rate at which scarce assets that are going to continue to appreciate are going up in price, right? So. What's the best investment idea? Bitcoin. What's, what, how fast is it go up, going up in price? 200% this year. We have hyperinflation in pure at property, in pure liquid money. Hyperinflation. You know, we have inflation in, in uh, scarce and desirable assets. Um. Houses in the Hamptons are up 50% in and, and, uh, 16 weeks, right? The price of a house in the Hamptons. What is that? Well, when you buy a house in the Hamptons, you're buying a, a, a scarce piece of property on a real and on an elite real estate network. When you buy a Bitcoin, you're buying a scarce piece of property on um, a global liquid monetary network. Okay, which is better? Well, clearly Bitcoin is better because Bitcoin is liquid, global, fungible. I can take it anywhere on earth. And, and, uh, and by, there's no property tax on it, and I don't have to worry about New York State taxing my property away from me. right? So given a choice between investing 20 million in Bitcoin or 20 million in Hampton's real estate, clearly, the rational thing is buy 20 million worth of Bitcoin. But if you're a New Yorker. And, and you've decided you need to get outside of Manhattan. Well, all the wealthy New Yorkers, they all go to the Hamptons. That it's, a, it's a social network slash real estate network. It's scarce. Ergo, prices go up by 50% in three months. And the transaction volume goes up by 50%. And they're, you know, they're turning over. Uh, the, the entire real estate business is up 100% year over a year the real estate agents are doing great. Is there inflation? If you're, if your aspiration is to live an elegant life of, of affluence in the New York area, then you have hyperinflation, right. Uh, in, in that, uh, in, in, uh, that real estate market. So, and of course they do, right. Go to a, go to a wealthy New Yorker and say, well, you know, um, there's no CPI inflation, nothing to be concerned about here. You just got to decide what you want to put in the basket. I think that when you, when you work your way through it, you conclude, you, you can look at it as like five buckets, right? There's the affluent bucket and, and you're seeing 20 on average across all assets, right? It's like that 20 to 24% M2 monetary supply expansion rate. So you could say that the inflation rate for just a broad basket of assets is like 20% or, or so this year, or 24%. That's why the stock market's at an all-time high, because people that have liquid monetary energy, they want to buy those assets, and they're all bidding against assets that are scarce, or that are reasonably scarce. Not totally scarce, by the way. The reason that those assets aren't going up as fast as Bitcoin, the, the reason that gold is outperforming maybe the S&P, is because the S&P, they're producing more securities. They're producing more convertible debt and more equity. And so it's not quite as scarce. It's harder to produce the gold. But of course, it's really hard to produce the Bitcoin. So so, uh, what you've got is everybody surging to acquire more assets. The asset supply isn't expanding as fast as the money supply is expanding. Ergo, the price is going up. That's, that is inflation of assets or, a, or asset inflation. I always call it cost of capital.
1: So let's talk about that a little bit more because a lot of the people in our audience are people that are trying to perform economic calculation. They're trying to value a business. And I love this example of M2 that you're talking about use, and using it in a frame of reference as your risk-free rate. And then talk to us about, so talk to us about that a little bit, and then also talk to us about whatever the risk premium would be on top of this quote unquote risk-free rate.
2: Okay. Yeah. So, so our inflation is just a vector. So you've got, you've got a market basket of stuff that's deflationary, it's not inflating. You got another market basket of stuff that's probably going up three to 5%. You've got another market basket of stuff that's going up 8%. But, but if you really want the best measure, if your goal is wealth preservation, I, if your desire is to be wealthy or to stay wealthy, <laughs> wealth preservation, you're either pursuing wealth or you wish to keep, preserve wealth, you wish to preserve shareholder value. Your best surrogate is cost of capital, which is closest to the rate of uh, the broad money supply expansion, which was 24% this year, which as we look out is going to be probably between 10 and 15% a year every year for the next five years. And that's that's based upon the Federal Reserve policy, the EU central bank policy. You know, you, you, you've you had uh, Lynn Alden estimate that she thought it was 13 percent. But, you know, a lot of the estimates are, um, are optimistic and politically correct. They're, nobody can stand up on television and they can't estimate, well, it's going to be, it was 24 percent this year. It'll stay 20 percent next year and then 20 percent and then 30 percent. Because that's like not forecasting a V-shaped recovery. You know, in March, everybody forecast a V-shaped recovery. You kind of have to, because otherwise you're kind of Cassandra, Debbie Downer, politically incorrect. No one could forecast an L-shaped recovery. That is, Main Street's going down and not coming back up again. Have you noticed that you haven't seen anybody talk about the L-shaped recovery on television? Well, you know, here's the joke. We got a V-shaped recovery in financial assets. We got an L-shaped recovery in Main Street operations in real business. But they didn't call it L-shaped. They called it K-shaped recovery. <laughs> so they came up with a uh, you know some you know uh, just a nice pleasant phrase, right? Uh, K-shaped recovery because it doesn't sound as as horrifying. As L-shaped recovery or no recovery, right? So um, I think the forecast, as you look out, is um, I would guess fifteen percent. Like my best guess is fifteen percent. I've seen people say it'll be fifteen, then it'll be twenty, then it'll be twenty-five. It could get worse. That would be a hyperinflation scenario, or it could be better. You know, it's like if we start to run less deficit, but but that'll require fiscal austerity and. That never worked in, you know, it didn't work in Greece. It hasn't worked in Southern Europe. It hasn't, you know, it didn't work in Italy. We haven't seen it work anywhere in particular. So I wouldn't expect it. So what does this mean for a company
1: that only makes a 5% margin on their business?
2: Yeah. So let's just work through that model. Let's just assume to make it simple that we expect a 15% expansion of the money supply for the next four years. Um, that's the cost of capital. That's the risk-free hurdle rate or the risk-free discount rate. If you want to preserve your wealth or preserve your store of value, then you're going to have to beat the hurdle rate and the risk premium. So let's assume that you have, um, a risk-free bond, um, a, a piece of sovereign debt, right? Um, US government debt. That's the closest thing to risk-free we can get. There's not, no credit risk on it. So if I give you that bond and it's yielding 5%, but you know, the money is being devalued at 15% or, or the assets, the assets that you wish to buy are going to be 15% more expensive next year. Right. The assets the assets that you wish to buy are going to be 15% more expensive the year after that, too. And then the year after that, because there's going to be more money chasing after the same fixed amount of assets. So if I give you a bond and it only yields 5%, then that means that you're losing 10% of your value a year, and you're going to lose another 10% the next year, another 10%. In four years, you're going to lose half your purchasing power. So half of your wealth will be destroyed on a 5% coupon. Against a 15% uh, cost of capital. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all. So you might say to me, why did anybody ever buy any bonds in the last decade? And you know, the dynamic there has been that the bonds have been yielding two, three, four, five percent. The cost of capital has been about five, five to six percent. The M2 money supply has been expanding about five and a half percent for the last decade. And so uh, the bonds aren't quite keeping up with the cost of capital. Well, if you, if you can't keep up with the cost of capital, you have to leverage up. And so the equivalent of leveraging up is take the interest rate down. So I can make the bond hold value if I have a 5% interest rate and I crank it to 4.5% interest. I'll get a capital gain in the bond. The bond, the, the, the face value of the bond will trade from 100 to 110 or something. And so, or 105. So even though, um, even though the bond is yielding less than the cost of capital, I get a capital gain on the face value. And so I stay ahead of the hurdle rate. Now, if that continues the next year, I need the interest rate to click down from 450 basis points to 425. And I need to click down to 400. And then I need to click down to three, 350. And so what you've seen in the past decade is a march from 550 basis points down to the 10-year was 50 basis points. And we just keep marching down. If you want a whole value in bonds, uh, when you get to 50 basis points, then you have to go negative. So that, that's what happened in Europe. That's what happens in Japan. They literally took them negative. And in the US, all the people who are bond investors, $100 trillion worth of money in bonds, they all need the Fed to take the interest rate negative if their bonds are going to hold value. If if they do uh, take them negative, then uh, they'll get a capital gain in the bond and that will offset uh, the cost of carry, you know, the, the negative cost of carry. So, so. The question of whether bonds will hold value all just comes down to does the interest rate click down, and when you get to the end of the line, if they 're not going negative, then the bonds are, are collapsing in value obviously if if uh, the problem with bonds this year is not only have we there's twofold we hit the end of the line with interest rates they 're not going negative anymore, so you don't you don 't keep getting you know, a f- a five percent decrease or 10% decrease in the interest rate is a 10% capital gain, right? So you don't keep getting that boost in, uh, in, in the uh, face value of the bond. And the second problem is cost of capital tripled. Uh, that's the, that's the earth shattering problem, right? Well, and I think it's important to note
1: that this, this premium that you're talking about that goes onto the, the price of the, the bond in the aftermarket uh, as interest rates drop it only adds to your ability to outpace this hurdle rate of 15% like you're saying if you sell it on the open market and you don't let it mature if you let it go to maturity none of that premium that we're talking about due to a drop in interest rates occurs you're not able to capture it
2: that's a really good point because it's trading above par i mean a lot of times you'll see these bonds they're issued at 100 and they'll be trading at 110 120 130 is like you look at them and you grit your teeth. You're like, "Why would I ever buy this?" Because in six years, it's going to pay me back a hundred.
1: Yeah, it's,
2: like, it's it almost hurts, you know, to see these things. Well, and, so-
1: and, and the premium that you're getting paid on the longer duration ones, only further compounds the reason to pile into the longer duration ones because you're you're most likely going to sell it on the aftermarket and, and capture that big that big premium that you're getting on the short duration stuff. There's, there's no compensation in the price in the, uh, in the secondary market or in the market if you try to sell it because there's just, you're not capturing any of that. There's, there's no premium being bid into it because it's going to mature too quickly.
2: I think you're adequately, I mean, very articulately describing why there is anxiety in the bond market right now. Why, if you're holding any of that $100 trillion worth of debt you have to have anxiety about store of value right and and why if you decide to hold a debt portfolio you're really you're really a slave to the whim of the central banks right absolutely. i mean if, absolutely pretty much anybody that's a bond portfolio investor their number one job is just to try to convince the central bankers to keep moving the interest rates down yeah. And keep keep the if the interest rates ever move up, they get destroyed in a heartbeat. But if they don't keep moving down, uh, the, the bonds bleed off value, you know, over the next one, two, three years. And eventually you're in a bubble and the bubble collapses.
1: I now Michael, I had a, I have, have edit that. I have had a ton of people that have told me, well, why is it different this time than in 2008, Preston? And my immediate response is, well, back in 2008, we had interest rates on the 10-year treasury at 5.5%, and they had plenty of room to drop it down to offset this risk premium that you're talking about. right? If, if they drop interest rates 100 basis points, the premium that's put on that on that security, on that fixed income security, gets bid so high in the and you can turn around and sell it for a profit to offset this risk premium that you're talking about, but once you get down to where we're at now, less than a hundred basis points on on the coupon that's being issued i mean i they're they're at an end game they you can't keep playing this farce unless you start taking things well into the negative territory, and then people are just going to take their money out and and put it into a, a safety deposit box because they're going to get a higher return than what the than what the negative interest rate bond is is being issued at, it's it's total insanity. That's the difference between where we're at today and in two thousand eight. And I see you shaking your head; you agree.
2: I, I remember specifically uh, in that time frame that uh, I was able to generate five hundred and fifty basis points on overnight cash, like that. the 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 repo rates and the overnight rates were like five percent. Like I didn't have to take a 10 year bet or a 30 year bet. You could generate 5% interest on a one month, a three month, you know, debt instrument, no risk, credit, credit grade. And so we've been in a March from, you know, short from LIBOR short-term rates of 5% all the way down to zero. And so now we're at the end of the line because you're right. You have to go negative, but the problem with going negative is the interest rate's the value of time, and so when you turn interest rates negative, you're trying to stop time and make it flow in reverse i mean it really it really is kind of declaring war on the passage of time. how's that going to end <laughs> like like you you know you might as well try to get you know, you got $17 trillion of negative yielding bonds. It's like trying to move 17 trillion gallons of water uphill. Like it's natural for water to flow downhill. It's natural for time to move forward. Attempting to get time to move in reverse is a very difficult thing. You're attempting to get someone like, like to give you all of their, all of their energy and sacrifice the rest of their life and pay you for the privilege. So let's think think about all these store evaluations. You've got three buckets. You've got bonds, you've got real estate, commercial real estate, you've got stocks. They're all fiat instruments. With a bond, it's it's kind of simple calculation. If I don't beat the hurdle rate with the coupon, then I have to leverage up and I have to drop the interest rate in, in order to make that whole value. When interest rates stop going down and the coupon is less than the hurdle rate, I'm destroying value. In the current environment, uh, you know, a 2% government bond against a 15% hurdle rate means you lose 13% of your value every year. You know, you, you can do the simple math, right? You get cut in half in five years and uh, you get cut in half again. And so you're down, you'll lose 75% of your money in 10 years uh, at, at that rate. Um, commercial real estate trades like a bond. The only reason I want to hold commercial real estate, like a warehouse or whatever, is, is for the is for the rents and the rents are coupons. And as the interest rates fall, commercial real estate starts to trade kind of like a bond. You know, uh, the lower the interest, the higher the higher the value of the real estate. You know, the three already- percent.
1: And if you own it in a location that has scarce land or resources, then the, the face value of it would be going up effectively. So it'd be a little bit.
2: Yeah, you might, you might get a, a boost for like marquee scarcity value. But, yeah, yeah. but I, mean, I mean, generally, if you told me this is a piece of real estate that generates a million dollars a year in rent or triple net rent after paying expenses and tax and the like, it feels like a bond that yields a million dollars a year. And the, you know, then my question is, well, is there like a CPI escalator on it? Okay. There's a CPI escalator. It's a million dollars going up 2% a year. Okay. Well, you're going to give me $10 million over 10 years, but in 10 years, the cost of all the assets I want to buy will have an inflated at 15% a year for 10 years. Well, at 15, yeah. At, at, a year. That means in four and a half years, the cost of what I want to buy doubles. And so, and then it doubles again. So the cost of whatever I want to buy is going to be 5X. So that means that the money I get from the commercial real estate, 10 million bucks is only going to buy me $2 million worth of stuff. Right? So what do I really want? You know, I guess you can either pay me 2 million now, or $10 million over 10 years, and they're both equivalent when you have a, a hurdle rate of 15%. So that means the commercial real estate's going to hold its value proportional to, you know, the hurdle rate. When the hurdle rate triples, commercial real estate all starts to look very risky. How do I get ahead of the, hur- how do I hold value? I have to grow my rents faster than the hurdle rate. Good luck. Oh. <laughs> Show me a piece of commercial real estate that's gonna that's gonna grow its rents fifteen percent a year. By the way, you've got to tack on a risk premium. You know, with a bond it's credit risk, and with commercial real estate it's also credit risk. It's the credit worthiness of the counterparty. So how well, how good do you feel about real estate that's rented out to a retailer that's getting crushed by Amazon, or how do you feel about a bookstore being crushed by you know Google, or how do you feel about a newspaper being crushed by Facebook, or there's a lot of commercial. How do you feel about theater real estate you can would you actually take a 10 year lease on a theater or how about a business hotel business travel is down you want a statistic Preston this is interesting do you know um i think my business travel in my company is down 98% year my, over year oh my god like we're not talking 50% down we're not talking 25% down. We're not talking 75% down. We're talking about 99, 98% off. And that's directly directly coming out of revenues of hotels and airline, a business hotel, a business airline, business travel. And I don't and think you're an outlier either
1: compared to other Uh-oh. businesses. I think that that's probably maybe 90%, let's, let's just be liberal, I think that most of your businesses are probably 90% or 95%. That's,
2: that's so, totally destructive. So what you've got is you've got a bunch of commercial real estate and half of it's impaired asset. Yeah. Well, okay. what I mean, really I guess- getting,
1: You're getting at occupancy rates. Like If you're using whatever occupancy you, you were using to calculate your coupon, as you, as you called it earlier, um, you can't be using those occupancy rates moving forward. There's just no way.
2: I think you have to assume, um, you just have to assume that large portions of commercial office space, warehouse space, retail space, hotel space, travel event, event convention centers, all these things, you know, I mean, you know, every sports stadium has been dark, you know, since March, all of them, every concert hall dark since March. And um, so you've got a lot of impaired asset. Now it's it's valued, it's, it's, it's probably overvalued as far as I can see, because interest rates are all time low. It's been trading like a bond, you know, and people been able to refinance it, but you're gonna end up with, in essence, zombie bonds and zombie companies and zombie real estate, you know, sort of like what happened in Japan, when the economy stops, when the central bank starts buying all the sovereign debt, then they draw by all the corporate debt, then they buy the equity index, and then they start buying the equities. And then pretty soon this, and by the way, it's kind of a nice way of saying I mean, to say they're buying these things is probably one way to say it, another way to say though, they just print a bunch of public money to support all those things that no individual would buy if they were rational. No rational investor would buy any of these securities or any of these properties. So the buyer of last resort becomes a government official. And then the market mechanism breaks down. So it's nationalization.
1: You know, what, it's, it's the nationalization of you know, businesses, but they're doing it through a per share basis, which hides, it masks what's actually happening versus a country that would just step in and buy the whole business all at once. But the, the amount of shares that they own and the voting rights that are, that are associated with those shares, I mean, they're, they've nationalized their equity market. It's crazy. And,
2: and yeah, in essence, you eliminate price discovery, you nationalize all these private assets and, and then companies that shouldn't exist that the, the, and assets that don't really have any value to society anymore they continue to soak up the monetary energy of the civilization. And and that creates hyperinflation in assets. But of course, there is no word for hyperinflation. There is no word for inflation of assets in the mainstream lexicon. No government official will ever refer to it. No mainstream reporter refers to it. Most of the conventional macroeconomic analysts don't refer to it. Even investors that kind of get it right and they intuitively know how to invest to make money, they still have a hard time articulating why they, they should do what they do because they're missing this fundamental observation that uh, the asset inflation rate is the cost of capital. Yes. As, By as soon as you, I, I have literally had this discussion with people, you know, they talked about Japan. They said, well, you know, central banks don't cause inflation. Like, look at Japan. They don't have any inflation. And I look at them and I think, you know, are you out of your mind? Like real estate in Tokyo is the most expensive real estate on the planet. What are your odds of graduating from school with an engineering degree, going to work and being able to afford to buy a, a house in Tokyo? But what are your odds of being able to buy an apartment? What are your odds of being able to buy a house or an apartment in Manhattan? using a salary.
1: Yeah, Uh, not going to happen.
2: (laughs) In the Hamptons, a two acre property is, you know, people are paying $20 million for a house on two acres in the Hamptons. Okay, so you go to New York City and what are you making? $500,000 a year? Okay, $500,000 is a lot of money. Like last I checked, $500,000 a year used to be like a fortune. People used to aspire to make $500,000 a year. You make 500000 a year, pay 200000 in taxes, save $100,000 a year for 20 years. Yeah. Okay.
1: And you, and and, you, and you have 10% right. down for your uh, property. And you, you have $2 million. <laughs> and
2: so if you work as a well-paid uh, uh, master of the universe for 200 years, you can buy a house in the Hamptons. But of course, you can't because it's going up at seven percent a year. It's insane. 15% a year. So the truth is you have to work for two million years. So the real point is if you calculate it, you will find that certain assets are completely out of reach of anybody. There's by the way, the only way you can make enough money to buy a house in the Hamptons, you make you got- two million a year. You can't earn enough. To make uh to buy a house in the Hamptons, you have to actually buy an asset that goes up in price faster than the cost capital. So you have to become an investor and you and you have to either guess right and buy Zoom or Facebook stock at the right time, or Apple or Amazon at the right time. And you probably have to do it with leverage. Because you know, without leverage, you know, so you get 10x your investment. You know, you can't save $400,000. And so you save $400,000, you save $100,000 a year for four years. You bet it all on something. It goes up by a factor of 10. You have $4 million. You know, you close out the trade. You have two and a half million after tax. You still can't buy the house in the Hamptons, right? So what, what you have is this, um, this interesting observation You have hyperinflation in assets. By the way, I want to make one more point. After the great uh, monetary crisis 2010, there was a collapse in um, real estate values, a collapse. And if you look at a map, like I remember looking at a map of uh, the UK, all of the prices of real estate collapsed outside of London, and then they mapped the recovery And what happened was the real estate prices came back much stronger in the magic mile, the one square mile in the middle of Chelsea, the middle of Kensington, the middle of London. They came back. And then as you went out in concentric circles, uh, it was like a heat map. They came back slower. And then once you get outside of London proper, they never recovered. And you had the same dynamic after the crisis in, in New York in Miami, in Los Angeles, and in San Francisco. The big cities of the world where, they, where you're tracking the asset price of real estate, they all, uh, like a black hole, they all sucked in all the monetary energy. The price went through the roof. And then everywhere else, all the monetary energy got sucked out of them. And um, what you could see was massive asset inflation of the desirable assets, the scarce desirable, what could be more scarce than uh, a, a nice townhouse in Chelsea, like right on Green Park or, or, or Kensington or, or, or whatever. So we had hyperinflation, all the money, it doesn't find its way into Netflix or YouTube or Or, uh, you know, it doesn't find its way even into the iPhone, although iPhone kind of marched up a bit. I mean, Apple was able to drive the price up. It doesn't find itself in a lot of these areas where it really pulls is in the desirable assets that people with flexibility could buy. And you saw skyrocketing luxury real estate, urban real estate. You see skyrocketing. Boy, it finds its way into the asset values of professional sports teams. You ever track the price of a football team over 30 years? You know, people That's own phenomenal. a football team yeah. and they would buy it at 200 million and it would go up in value 7% a year, 10% a year. They're just refinancing the asset. And all of a sudden it's worth a billion or $2 billion. It's a franchise because it's scarce. They got a monopoly on football teams. They got a monopoly on the contract. And so if you happen to be someone that owned that scarce asset, all the inflation was in that asset. If you own scarce real estate in Manhattan, if you own a sports team, if you own uh, a scarce piece of art, well, then you just hold the asset and refinance it and you never pay taxes. You just keep borrowing against the asset as it goes up in price. And so you've just got this uh, really sweet thing. Now, the, the irony is that happens right in front of our face. And yet everybody says, oh, there's no inflation in Tokyo. There's no inflation in Japan. And I, I think probably the, the best measure is how many hours you have to work to buy a, a share of S&P stock or something like that. And uh, that, that's informative. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
0: Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. That's Fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at Fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account while we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? dot com slash wsb that's all lowercase go to shopify.com slash wsb now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in that's shopify.com slash wsb all right back to the show
1: so michael i want to transition into a conversation about this big decision that you made And then we'll talk about the second big decision that you made. And before we talk about it, I want to frame this up and I want to see if you agree with the way I'm framing this. So you started your company and your company has been profitable for decades. And you guys uh, had $475 million of retained earnings. Those are the profits that you guys as a company collectively made. And you had that in, in liquid cash. You go out. After 30 years of creating this this treasure chest of cash, you go out, you buy Bitcoin, 475 million dollars worth of Bitcoin, and for all intents and purposes, it's doubled in value uh, within six weeks, six to eight weeks, or whatever it was. And so you you've you've effectively walked through a time warp of value creation in. I, I don't know what percent that would be, but I would think it's less than a percent of the time that it took you to create it, and, and you doubled it. Is is that how you see what has taken place since October or September or whatever it was when you first put on this position?
2: <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I I, I see that. I, look, I think that. Um- We went through a transition in March where the cost of capital went from 5% to 15%. And a rational person has to say, looking forward, the cost of capital is 15% and the currencies are being devalued at 15% a year in the Western world. They're being devalued at a faster rate in the other parts of the world. That means cash is a liability, not an asset. And it means that every fiat instrument based on cash, stocks, bonds, and real estate are starting to look like they need to be discounted at 15% a year plus the risk premium. So, you know, unless it's a monopoly and there's really no such thing other than, you know, U.S. sovereign debt, everything else has some amount of risk on it. And so you're talking about cost of capital that's looking like 18 to 20%. So. We got to this point and We looked at it, and we just said, "Well, we're going to have to do something to remain solvent, right?" And you're, you know, if you're, if you're
1: from a perspective of keeping pace with your buying power, when you say the word solvent,
2: I guess, yeah, I guess you would say if you want to preserve shareholder value, you're going to have to do something different than hold cash on your balance sheet. The cash becomes becomes a fifteen percent. A minus 15% liability per year, reasonably speaking. So let's talk about corporate treasury strategy. So we're we're in an environment now where it's reasonable to think that the hurdle rate is 15%. And uh, the currency is going to is going to devalue by 15% a year for the next four to five years. That's the best guess. It could get worse, it might be a little bit better, but but once you crank that assumption in, then you have to say, is cash an asset or a liability? Well, cash is a liability. If you want to preserve shareholder value, which is the same as preserving wealth, which is the same as preserving value, right? If you wish to uh, store value, then at 15%, you're going to lose 75% of the value in 10 years. You're not going to be able to buy anything with it, any asset with it. Um, you can't really focus on inflation, right? You got to focus upon the cost of capital. Now, um, if you look at stocks, bonds, and real estate, the issue is they've all got a yield on them, but the yield probably doesn't beat the risk premium or probably isn't. I mean, the yield of the the dividend, et cetera. Yeah, you're getting 3% or 4% or whatever, but at the end of the day, the risk, the credit risk of holding a bond that yields 5% you know, is such that you're you're stripped down to two percent risk free or so. And so you're still gonna be looking at something which is 10 to 15% dilutive every year. So stocks, bonds, real estate, just they're not gonna hold value either. People, I think they delude themselves into in this thinking that they're safe in these things, but but uh, I think we're at the end of the road for stocks, bonds and real estate because they've all been inflated to a max by the progression of the interest rate to zero and by the leveraging up of all the of all the companies to put as much cheap debt as they could in order to get the most amount of leverage. And at this point there's not any more leverage you can put on these things and you can't and you can't put the interest rates below zero effectively. So a reasonable estimate is if you park $500 million in any of that stuff, you're still going to lose 10% to 15% a year. You know, you're going to think maybe, you know, these traders, they think, Oh, I can take leverage and trade this and that. And I'm a stock picker, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, you're going to make as many mistakes as you make good guesses and you're not going to outdo the money. Uh, or, or the return on the money, which is gonna be minus 15%. So you're probably staring at the same minus 15%. And you might actually get horrifically worse than that. I mean, <laughs> right? There's worse results than losing 15% a year, right? If, if you if you invest in companies, they go insolvent. But the best result is you're just holding a market basket of assets that the Fed is going to buy. And as the and, and as as the Fed buys them, you've got that inflation. So What are you going to do? Well, I've got this thought in my head, Preston. I don't know why I have it, but it's it's been just in my mind. I'm almost dreaming this thing now. It's the road to serfdom consists of working exponentially harder in order to earn a currency growing exponentially weaker. Like, if you're an individual... You're that dude in New York, and you're working to make five hundred grand a year, and then you want to, ma- and then you want to raise, and you keep taking risk, and you work harder, and you stay longer, and you keep struggling, but the house in the Hamptons is going up faster than you can work harder, right? It's the road to serfdom. If you if you play that game, you have a company that makes fifty million a year you're going to make 50 million a year and you're going to try to grow the company faster than the hurdle rate i have to grow the company 20% a year to stay ahead of the 15% hurdle rate with the risk premium how are you going to do that you're going to take risk you're going to you're going to throw money at the problem you're going to throw people at the problem you're going to do an acquisition you're going to do a dilutive acquisition you're going to do a you're going to do a risky you're going to take a risky trade this is um and and you're going to try as hard as you can in order to make money. But no matter how hard you work, you can't, you can't grow faster than the rate at which the bank can print money. So I'll give you another metaphor. You, march, you, you have one of those heart rate monitors and you march up a mountain. When you get to 9,000 feet, you ever check your heart rate? My heart rate's beating 20% faster. I'm like, why is my heart beating 20% faster? Well, if you do the, the quick altitude check, and you know this, you're a pilot, there's 30% less oxygen in the air yeah. at 9,000 feet or so, some number like that. Um, so if I take 20, 30% of the oxygen out of the air, my heart's got to pump 25% faster to move the same amount of oxygen in order to keep me uh, alive. Now, if I just keep marching you up the mountain 10,000 feet, Twelve thousand feet, fifteen thousand feet. Your heart has to beat faster and faster because the oxygen's falling out of this, out of the atmosphere, and eventually your heart bursts. Right, but happens all the time. You know, fifty-five year old dude goes on a ski vacation with his buddies from college, and you know they get up and he skis down the slope and he drops dead of a heart attack. I don't know how that happened. Well, I know how it happened. It happened because your heart's beating 25% faster and you're under stress and you're not as in good shape as you were when you were 25, you know? And, and, uh, and so what we're doing is as we crank up the hurdle rate, individuals, you either have to work harder, 25% harder, or you have to take more risk in your portfolio and you keep doing all these risky trades. So what you're really saying is everybody's hypoxic right now. Yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying, what I'm saying is that what I'm saying is that a government official took you into a room, put you onto a hamster wheel, and then they told you to run as fast as you can. And and they told you that if you run fast enough, they'll keep pumping oxygen in the room. And then they started pumping 20% less oxygen in the room. And then you're Simon. You ever try to run on a treadmill at 9,000 feet, Preston? That's nuts. I, I've done it. I mean, anybody, and athletes, you know, you do. By, why do they train Olympic athletes like at altitude? It's like twice as hard. So you're on a, you're on a hamster wheel or a treadmill. The oxygen is getting sucked out of the room you're trying harder. Your heart is getting revved. And at some point you have a heart attack and you literally, your heart burst. And what is an example of this? It's like every company that was a low growth company in the last decade, and they're trying to stay ahead of the hurdle rate. So they take on debt and they leverage up. And then, and they either, there are two ways that companies try to stay ahead uh, of the hurdle rate to keep shareholder value. One way is I do acquisitions. I'm buying a company, buying a company, buying a company. It, it, it's a dilutive acquisition. It's taking massive risk because it's really hard to integrate two companies together. It's, and not, there's a 90% failure rate, but I see companies do this. They're, they're doing acquisitions and then they, they fail. The number one reason that all software companies fail in my entire career for 30 years, I watched this. Number one reason, bad acquisition. Yeah. Now, the other thing they do Is they borrow money to buy their stock back and they leverage up. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to borrow Oracle, buys tons of money, buys their stock back. Now we're holding 40, 50 billion in debt on the balance sheet. Toys are us. We're borrowing money by the stock back. We're leveraging up. That's another way to get ahead. And you want to put these two together in the most, uh, you know, toxic cocktail. I borrow money to buy another company. (laughs) And so I put them both together. I'm either leveraging risk. Or I'm, or I'm leveraging to take my, uh, my shares out of production. And this is the road to ruin. It's the road to serfdom. And it all starts with uh, somebody on the board of directors or an outside investor saying, you know, you're going to have to generate more than 8% growth. Eight, I need 8% share growth. Amazon's, you know, growing 20%. Why can't you grow 20%? Okay, so here's the last, the last gotcha. Like, not only do you have to work harder, you know, you're not growing 10% a year, you're a loser. You know, not only do you have to take on more risk, you can't grow 10%, why don't you, you know, you're running a bakery, why don't you like launch a bar down the street? Why don't you expand into a foreign town? Why don't you buy your competitor? Why don't you uh, do a leverage trade on options? Why don't you, you know why don't you do something different? So I have to work harder. I have to do risky stuff. Like, and then the third part is, oh, and by the way, you have to compete against big tech monopolies that have infinite free money and infinite power that have the ability to ship products to a hundred million people over the weekend for a nickel. You got to compete against Microsoft. Oh, they have like, Every company on earth is their customer now. Okay. So, what's that feel like? Well, they can just ship anything they want to every customer on earth now. You think that's not an advantage? You got to compete against Amazon. You got to compete against Apple. You got to compete against Google. You got to compete against Facebook. So, as the bankers are basically printing, they're giving free money to the big corporations. They're also they're also putting you on this treadmill where you have to go faster and faster and and do riskier and riskier things, and those three dynamics, right, are are a road to ruin. And that's why so many mid-sized businesses and small businesses are getting crushed by this economic uh, environment we're in.
1: Do you see Square and PayPal? really disrupting traditional wall street banks moving forward based on what you your you understanding of bitcoin the fact that they are way out in front of many others in their adoption and yeah. integration of that how do you see that playing out as far yeah, as so, the finance yeah sectors? let's
2: talk about that i i talk about the problem the problem for corporations right is is they're being squeezed toward insolvency by competition and cost of capital and um and uh the requirement to like beat, beat this hurdle rate. The solution is Bitcoin. And, and how, you know, the solution is I have to either plug my PNL into a monetary network, uh, an accretive monetary network, or I have to plug my balance sheet into a monetary network. So Bitcoin is the world's first engineered monetary network, and it is an accretive asset it's, it's like an asset growing more than 100% a year versus the dollar, you know, and and that's one way financially it makes sense, but it's also a big tech network growing faster than 100%. So if I'm Square or PayPal, they're competing against Google and Apple, right? So you could say, oh, they're big. Well, actually, they're competing on one hand against JP Morgan and And Citigroup and Wells Fargo against monster banks. But on the other hand, they're competing against monster big tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook. Okay, so they're really the upstart challengers, and they're in between these two worlds, the old world of banking and the new world of big tech. So what's your best idea there? Well, the best idea is plug your mobile payment app into Bitcoin because Bitcoin needs a high-speed payment rail. Bitcoin needs uh, a stable currency solution to buy coffee, right? So Square and PayPal solve the problem of how do I buy coffee with Bitcoin? And they solve the problem and, and they give you a, a rapid payment rail um, to every visa, you know, compliant merchant on the, on the planet. But um, what they do, what they get for themselves is, this is not really about Bitcoin. This is about Square, Square needs to do this because Square is able to offer all of its customers a savings account that yields 100% interest yield tax-free.
1: On an annual basis.
2: Yeah. You know, if I put my million dollars or 100,000 or 10,000, whatever the numbers, if I put 100,000 into Bank of America or a conventional bank, I'm going to get 25 basis points, it's a liability and in five years, it'll purchase half of what it would purchase today. So I'm gonna lose half my wealth while I get no yield. That's one option. The other option is I put my million dollars into uh, Bitcoin off of the Square Cash app. I think they're like whatever, take 20,000 a week or 10,000 a week. So maybe let's call it $100,000. I put $100,000 in the Square Cash app. And it doubles next year and it doubles and it doubles and it doubles and pretty soon you have five million dollars. and that's how you buy that house, maybe not in the Hamptons, but maybe you know down the street from the Hamptons you you know starting from a hundred thousand. And the thing that makes it compelling is a, it's accreting at north of a hundred percent. B by oh A it's accreting at all. <laughs> B. It's accreting north of 100%. It's hyper growth. And C, it's accreting tax-free, right? Because, you, you know, you want to give me a bond that gives me 10% interest taxable? Well, 10% taxable is 6%, 5% in California after tax, right? I'm taking all the risk. This is why, you know, all the yield farming and chasing after yield and everything doesn't necessarily make sense. You're, you're taking huge risk to get 12% interest and you're going to pay 6% or 4% tax, and you got 6% after tax, you'd be better off to HODL, just take your Bitcoin or take your whatever, put it on the network, leave it there. The network's growing; it's up 200% this year, right? But let's, we don't have to be super optimistic. Let's say I just estimated it's been growing more than 100% for a decade, but I'm going to estimate it's going to grow 20% for the next decade. Because 20% is uh, one-tenth of what it did this year, and it's one-fifth of what is done any year for the most part. Um, And so once I make that decision, I got a savings account yielding 20% tax-free. That's the same as yielding 35% return consistently taxable. Okay, what bank on earth gives you that? No bank. Which company, which piece of real estate, which bond and which stock will give you 35% dividend? Nobody. So now I go back and I say, do I want to keep my money on Apple Pay or Google Pay or do I want to put it on Square? Well, the answer is on Apple Pay, it gives me zero interest. I'm going to lose half my wealth in in three years. On Square, I'm going to get a 20% interest, 35% you know, pre tax, tax equivalent interest. And so it's very simple. Money is going to go, capital is going to flow to wherever you get the highest uh, tax adjusted interest rate. And the beauty of Bitcoin is because I just uh, buy the Bitcoin and hold it, it's a zero coupon bond that's appreciating. It means you don't have all of the anxiety of managing city tax. New York City taxes you state tax, New York state taxes you, (laughs) federal tax, federal government taxes you, every other country taxes you, property tax, you don't have the anxiety of income tax, you know, all sorts of other types of Medicare, Medicaid taxes, every other thing, dividend tax rates, these are all massive questions. And Warren Buffett and any great investor would tell you that 40% 40% of the challenge of investing is just the tax efficiency of the investment. If you're perfectly right, you lose 40% of whatever just from being wrong on tax or, you know, or more potentially. Um, so for Square, this is a game changer. Now, once Square did it, PayPal's got to do it. It's the same thing. My competitor gives a 100% tax-free savings account. Okay. The beauty of this is that Square and PayPal do this. They bring utility to the Bitcoin network. You know, when Roger Veer barks, though, Bitcoin's only got seven transactions a second or three or four transactions a second. You can't buy coffee with it. Right. The point is, seven, seven transactions a second is fine because the, what, what it's going to be it is it's going to be Square Cash moving $182 million worth of Bitcoin once per day. And then they're going to do that settlement and they're going to provide uh, 37 million people with, um, with a Square Cash account. And they're going to do 187 million transactions a day on their network. Right? They're like a second level solution. They're going to do 180 million transactions a day for 37 million people and settle it with one transaction against the blockchain and it's going to scale just fine. Bitcoin wins, square wins, the customers win. Everybody converts their bitcoin into USD currency at the point of transaction.
1: I'm already seeing and this is this is just out with this Fold card. I don't know if you're familiar with with Fold and what they're doing. So, I got a debit card from Fold. I am bitcoin is literally part of every single transaction I make today. So with my fold card, I go out and I I sound like a commercial right now, but I go out and I spend, let's say, I want to pay my electrical bill or I want to go to Target and I want to buy whatever. After every single transaction, I get cash back, but I'm paid in Bitcoin. So in an indirect way, Bitcoin has already started because I mean, this thing has just come out. I can only imagine in a year from now, and if I'm getting 3% back on a transaction and Bitcoin goes up to the 100% that it has every year since since the past decade, I'm almost getting like a majority of the purchase of whatever I spent. If I spent $100 paying for whatever, I'm getting a significant portion of that back just in the first year through the through the 3% reward. And then in a couple of years, I'm getting the whole amount back. So I just don't know how... Things like just, that are going to, they're going to just totally eat the whole transaction payment layer.
2: Well, you just described, you described a company differentiating by plugging into the Bitcoin network to make you love the fold app. That's right. We can describe Square and PayPal differentiating by plugging into Bitcoin to let you buy Bitcoin in one click. By the way, it took me, it took me, uh, it took me six to eight weeks to buy bitcoin once I decided going through conventional bitcoin exchanges. So eliminating six to eight weeks and turning it into one click in one second, right? I mean there's utility to that. And And this isn't even
1: and what I'm what I'm talking about isn't even a click. It was it was just happening. It's just happening automatically in the background. And I'm not even having to do anything. I just you know, every week or so I'll look into, into the app and see what my, the treasury of Bitcoin that I've accumulated in rewards. And it's like, wow, this just is. And then as the price is going up, it's like, holy crap, this thing just keeps on going up. My rewards just keep doubling. It's, it's nuts.
2: So let's generalize this to corporate strategy for Bitcoin. Um, on p and side, Square and PayPal do this in their payment application. They give you a savings account. That's a big deal. That's a huge deal. If Apple wants to compete, they have to offer that to be at parity, and so does Google. Now, what's Apple do next? The logical thing for, for Apple is to build uh, a secure element hardware wallet into the iPhone and turn the iPhone into everybody's hardware wallet because then they can say, hey, we've got secure element. That would be better than what Square can give you. their software, but we've actually put it in the firmware. If they do that, by the way, um, I think Huawei uh, maybe Samsung might have done this in one of their phones. Uh, so it's it's an idea that popped up in the Far East, but Apple hasn't done it. If Apple does that, they can use that to try to uh, to take that bank account from Square. Square will have to innovate, and then and then Google on Android they've got to innovate. So Google's got to put that feature into Android, and they're going to need Samsung to build it into their hardware. So then you then you got Facebook, and then Facebook thinks they want to be in the money business. But so Facebook gives you a stable coin. That's interesting, but what do you want? Do you want to be able to pay someone with your phone or do you want to be rich? I think the answer is you want to be rich. And so, if Facebook wants to be competitive to Square and PayPal, Facebook's going to have to give you a quick on ramp to Bitcoin because the getting rich part comes from investing in an asset that pays you 100% tax free. It doesn't come from paying for coffee.
1: That's so, de- that's completely decentralized, and I think that's a really important point when you compare Facebook's Libra to Bitcoin. Libra is not completely decentralized like Bitcoin, and that's why you're saying what you're saying. Correct, Michael?
2: I I, I just think you know DM, which is uh, Facebook's stablecoin, it's just another me too thing. I mean, it's not a game changer. The game changer, but let me just say it this way: the game changer, Preston, is making everybody rich. Okay. <laughs> If, you're, if you can download a mobile app, get rich now, and put it on your phone and punch the button, don't you think a billion people are going to want that app? Yeah, it's, so, the, it's
1: the incentive structure that's going to drive all of this into, um, everyone has an interest to adopt this, is, is what you're saying, right?
2: Well, now, I just want to make my rounds here. What I'm saying is in big tech with all these mobile apps, if they don't give you the ability to funnel funnel a monetary energy into the Bitcoin monetary network, you can't tap into the network going 100% a year yeah, or 20% a year or 30%. It's the only thing that's accretive in the environment. Everything else is going to be dilutive. And as people start to realize that every, you know, that real, can I buy a million dollars worth of real estate that goes up 20% a year off my iPhone in one click? No. You know, can you... We've already gone over the issue, which is fiat instruments aren't going to be accretive in this monetary environment. There's, there's one obvious answer. It's Bitcoin. That means Google, Amazon, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, if they want to stay competitive with Square and PayPal, they have to adopt it. Now, that, now they've got their own advantages. I mean, Apple can, can actually build a hardware wallet into an iPhone. You know, Google needs Samsung to help them do it. So they've all got their and 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 Facebook can do some things that neither Apple and Google can do. And Amazon can, you know, Amazon can build uh build Bitcoin support. So they've all got their different assets and their ways to compete, but they they don't have a choice. If they want to stay competitive as the Bitcoin network grows, they're going to have to enter that space and that's going to be a benefit to the Bitcoin network. And it's going, to, it's going to, they're going to plug all the gaps in Bitcoin that, uh, that people criticize it for in terms of, you know, Facebook will give you a stable coin, right? DM will be the stable coin. And then, uh, then Facebook or Apple will give you a payment network. And then they'll give you the political support, right? And all of these things that people worry about that might be uh, risk factors for Bitcoin, they'll be cured by the big tech companies to plug into Bitcoin. Let's talk about, again, let's talk about corporate strategies for Bitcoin. One strategy is build, build it into your P&L. And you can see the big tech companies moving to do that. And Square and PayPal are catalyzing it. And I expect that, that Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, they all, have to face, they all have to follow. Otherwise, they're not competitive. Well, there's another group of people. Like, um, let's look at what's going on with like uh, mutual funds. Well, Fidelity, Vanguard, Pimco, all these guys, they need to offer Bitcoin funds. If they don't, then all of the money flowing into Bitcoin flows through who? Grayscale. Grayscale is the big winner because they're unique in the market. They're offering people simple ways to get into Bitcoin. And they've grown from two 2 billion to 13 billion in assets. So they're super high growth because there's a vacuum in the market. So if you're in the mutual fund business, then you need to build Bitcoin into your, into your product offering. If you want to stay competitive, then you go to the traditional banks. Uh, all the big banks need to build Bitcoin into their business. And that, and what does that mean? Uh, trading, banking, lending, yield custody. You're seeing that right now. Uh, for example, we just saw Standard Charters moving, DBS Bank, Banco Santander. There's a whole set of large banks that are, that are starting to creep into the custody space. And they are going to come in at their rate. And then you'll see the much faster, more aggressive banks, the Kraken. You know, they just got a banking license and, and, and Coin, Coinbase and Kraken and maybe Fidelity Digital Assets, maybe they'll come their way and Binance will do their thing. So there's a lot of competition there um, if these organizations wish to say competitive, they've got to plug into the monetary network with a mixture of product and service offerings, and some will do it fast and in an agile fashion, some will drag their heels and come they'll be followers and some will resist and they'll be marginalized right that's that's where when, when When someone takes a billion dollars of money out of your bank and they move it into the bank of Bitcoin, (laughs) how many billions of dollars have to flow out of your bank before you realize that you lost the custody and the yield and the carry on that money? And so that's a wake-up call. And it's starting to happen in 2021. That'll be much bigger. So all these corporations, they need a Bitcoin strategy on their P L if they wanna stay competitive. But now let's flip to the other side of corporations, the balance sheet. Even like MicroStrategy, we're not a bank, we're not a mobile app company. And so, but, and we sell enterprise software. It's not immediately obvious to me that people that buy business intelligence need Bitcoin built into my hyper intelligence or business intelligence software, right? It's a pretty obvious plug into Apple it's pretty obvious for Google. It's pretty obvious for Facebook. It's not obvious for enterprise software. It's it's not super obvious for Tesla, for example. But what can you do? What should you do? Um, Well, you have a treasury. I have 500 million in, in cash. So I can either hold it in a depreciating asset, USD, or I can flip it to BTC. So when I flip it to BTC, I plugged my treasury into the monetary network. It's equivalent, Preston, to having done a $500 million acquisition of a company, a big tech monopoly growing 100% a year. Yeah. So think about that. I had a $500 million revenue company selling software that's low growth, maybe growing 5% a year. If I do everything I can, work very hard, I can grow... 1% to 15% a year or whatever. It's a low growth. But then there's a big tech network, which is growing faster than Apple, faster than Google, faster than Amazon, faster than Facebook, that's dominant. And you can sort of acquire that. And so we bought $500 worth of that, and we just hold on to that. And now that basically turbocharges our balance sheet and hence our balance sheet goes from us owning 500 million worth of cash and, and uh, Bitcoin to owning a billion dollars worth of cash and Bitcoin. And as long as Bitcoin is accretive, and of course, as long as the Federal Reserve keeps printing money and the money supply expands and this dynamic ensues, then our balance sheet is growing faster than the hurdle rate. Right? If Bitcoin is growing 100% a year and the hurdle rate is 15% a year all of a sudden I went from having cash flows growing at 5% while the hurdle rate is growing 15% or is 15% to a company where my cash flows are growing hundred percent. And so here's the big idea. Any company, any, any traditional company, any traditional individual that's working for, uh, uh, working for a salary or generating cash flows in fiat currency that's growing slower than the hurdle rate can cure the problem by simply sweeping all their cash flows into Bitcoin. Because, you know, I take, take my company. If we're generating $50 million a year in cash and we, and we save in USD, Our treasury is exponentially going to zero and our cash flows in the future are being devalued by 15% a year, such that in 10 years, the cash is not going to be worth anything, right? So our cash flows are being devalued. Our treasury is being devalued. That's a road to serfdom. If you flip and you start and you invest all your treasury in Bitcoin and then you sweep all your cash flows into Bitcoin, it's like you have a company that is growing 100%. And so you converted yourself into a big, a big tech dominant network from a bakery or a dentistry or, or a traditional conventional business. And, and I think
1: it's important to note when you're talking, before when we were talking the income statement side versus now the balance sheet side, when you're making these decisions on your balance sheet, those gains are unrealized gains that don't have the frictional tax burden associated with them as long as you don't sell, which just compounds, if you continue to be right, compounds it even, I mean, I I can't imagine what that frictional barrier of tax, if this was on the income side, how much of a difference that would be.
2: Let me take you through an exercise. I have 500 million in revenue and I generate 50 million in cash flow a year. That's say after tax to make it easy yeah and i have and i have 500 million in in cash in usd and the hurdle rate uh, the cost of capital is 15% so i burn 75 million in purchasing power a year so net net I'm uh, minus 25 million a year you know i'm working as hard as i can to lose shareholder value mm-hmm. you know it's 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 uh, collapsing i convert the 500 million into bitcoin Let's say Bitcoin accretes by 20% a year. Very conservative number, but 20%. Now I go from having 50 million in cash flow, losing 75 million in purchasing power a year, to having 150 million in cash flow a year. Yeah. Okay. So because I'm getting hundred million in, in, in uh, tax deferred investment income yes, and 50 yes. million in operating income. So I went for I tripled my cash flows with that flip. Now, what happens if Bitcoin doubles and it goes to, and it's all worth a billion. Now I have 200 million in investment income a year, plus 50 million. Now I have 250 million worth of of income. And before I had minus 25 million of income. You see, before I did this, I was at minus 25 and now I'm at plus 250. Now, what happens if I go out and I borrow $500 million against the cash flows of the business at effectively zero interest. Now I've got $1.5 billion in an asset that's invested in a network that's the dominant monetary network growing 100% a year. But let's just discount that. And let's just say, to be conservative, it's only going to be 20% accretive. Now I have $1.5 billion that's going to generate $300 million a year in tax deferred investment income with the 50 million from the core business. Now you're up to 350 million. You can see that it's, it's not that much further. If it keeps increasing that you end up generating more income per year than the revenue of the company was last year. Now you can do that with anything. For example, if you're a dentist
1: as long as you got free cash flows.
2: Well, as long as you've got any assets at all. If you have no yeah. if you have no monetary energy to speak of, well that's a problem. But let's say you're a dentist and you're making and you've got a great dental practice. You make fi- you get 500,000 in revenue a year and you manage to save 50,000 a year and you have 500,000 in the bank or 500,000 in stocks and bonds and real estate. Sell that stuff, invest in Bitcoin sweep your excess cash in Bitcoin. It's the same exact calculation. Now you're generating a, you know, three X your cash flows. Instead of losing capital, you're making it and you're compounding. And then you're the dentist. So you go and you mortgage your house, take a 30 year mortgage at 3% interest, finance it, take 500,000 out. And now you've got a billion of Bitcoin, you know, or borrow against the dentist practice, right? Now, Now uh, you've got a billion on your balance sheet and you're generating $200,000 a year in tax deferred income with your 50,000 from your practice. Now you're making 250,000 a year. Now you're beating the hurdle rate. And so, you know, for an individual, the logical thing to do is, is you borrow against assets at a very low interest rate. You invest in an accretive asset that's going to have a high tax-deferred yield, and you sweep all of your fiat cash flows into the accretive asset because they're just going to you know, depreciate if you don't. And so that, that's the Bitcoin standard. That's what I did. That's what my company did. And we're kind of showing you how to do it. But that's the same as, as any individual could do if they simply use Bitcoin as a savings account.
1: So a person who's hearing that, because we have people that listen to the show that uh, look at Bitcoin, they look at the volatility, they haven't done the research that you've obviously done on uh, on Bitcoin, and they're saying, this sounds really risky, what you're describing. What, what's your best advice for that person who's, who's hearing this saying, this guy is obviously smart. I know yeah. he's smart. I can hear he's smart, but I just don't, I don't necessarily yeah, so trust Bitcoin. What, what do you let's say Let's talk to that about person? the
2: risk. So first of all, <clears throat> with regard to debt, there's intelligent debt and there's unintelligent debt. I, I, would, I think it's pretty foolish to go and buy Bitcoin on an exchange with 10 or 20x leverage on margin loans. Where you could be liquidated on a big move down or up. Like, you, you don't do that, right? If you're going to make an investment, you want to match, uh, you want permanent capital or permanent debt that's not marked to market. So, for example, like, would I borrow money for 30 years at 2.5% interest to buy a house? Yeah, doesn't everybody? Like, isn't that the American dream? Is that risky? No. What, what, what makes it risky? Well, if the interest rate might spike up, if it's not a fixed interest rate, that might be a little bit risky. Um, if the house gets marked to market every day and some, some banker shows up on Monday and says, I think your house is only worth half of what you paid for it. And now you owe us $400,000. I need to check before I leave. And you don't have $400,000. You're, you're ruined and bankrupt. That's risky. So if you borrow money against an asset which is not being marked to market at a fixed or well-understood affordable interest rate, and it's not going to come due for a period of time, then it's a lot less risky. So um, if you borrow money overnight in the repo market like Shearson Lehman did, you know, and, and then you buy risky stuff, then you might get ruined on a Monday morning when the market moves against you. So um, like... I'll tell you how we thought about it, you know, at my firm it's like we're borrowing money for 5 years in a convert. It's an unsecured loan, there are no covenants against it. Uh, it can't be it can't be called for 5 years. So we've got the use of the money for 5 years. It's not marked to any market, like it's not marked to our stock, it's not marked to the price of Bitcoin. There aren't any covenants that we have to test against. There's no cash flow covenants to trip over. There's, you know, there's none of these um, uh, these complications. So it's basically a large pool of money. The interest rate's fixed at 75 basis points. So the interest rate is de minimis. And we're, we're buying an asset with it that we believe is accretive. Now, is Bitcoin volatile? It's vol- volatile day to day, but you can't find a period of five years over the history of Bitcoin where it wasn't worth more at the end of the five years, right? There is no, there is no period where you could have bought Bitcoin and it was worth less money five years later, right? I mean, at this point, some people that bought at the very top in 2017, they had to wait three years. That's that's the you know, there's a 1% probability that you might wait three years, but that's in, that's in the past. So the volatility of Bitcoin day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month doesn't really have much impact. The only real question is, do you think it's going to go up? Will it be worth more than I bought it in five years? And if, and if it's worth more in five years than it is right now, the, uh, you know, the leverage is a winner. And if it's worth, you know, the truth of the matter is from our point of view, corporately even if Bitcoin was worth less in five years than it is right now, it's probably still a winner as long as it doesn't go to zero because if Bitcoin traded down 10% and it was very volatile all in the meantime, the, the volatility would be a benefit to my shareholders. (laughs) I mean, the guys that bought the convertible debt, they're trading the volatility. So as long as, um, as long as the asset doesn't go to zero five years from now, it's probably a winner because we'll probably use the capital you know, with, with common sense to make money over that time period. I think it's
1: really important to highlight as well for people that would be hearing about you borrowing money to buy Bitcoin, that the face value that's being paid back on this five-year note, you have double that uh, approximately. You have double that in liquid Uh, Asset current assets on your balance sheet to pay back the face value of what you're borrowing today. So that's that's a really important point when you talk about the health of your company and what you're doing and the position that you had set yourself up in prior to this decision to be able to do something like this.
2: Yeah. If you look at the analysis of this debt we issued, we had a company unencumbered, no credit lines, no debt. We had a company, you know, where we publicly said we expect to generate 60 to 90 million in cash flow a year. So the midpoint of that guidance is $75 million in cash flow a year. So over five years, you know, we're expecting to generate 400 plus million dollars in cash flow. Um, we, um, we had, we rolled into this with $900 million in cash liquid Bitcoin asset. So if we borrow $600 million dollars when the dust settles, we have <clears throat> one and a half billion or more worth of liquidity against a borrowing. So, so this is a loan to value of 30 to 40 percent versus liquid assets. plus it's backed by the cash flows of an of a, of a enterprise software company that's stable. And if Bitcoin went to zero, but if Bitcoin went down by 50%, right, we still can pay off the loan, right? If Bitcoin went to zero, we've still got cash and cash flow. We probably got cash and cash flow equal enough to pay off the loan if Bitcoin went to zero. And if Bitcoin went to zero and we stopped generating cash, there's no other debt on the company. So you've got first lien against an enterprise software company with thousands of customers and intellectual property, a very fine portfolio of domain names like hope, angel, you know, or hope and usher and courage and wisdom and strategy and the like. So there's a lot of assets, a lot of patents, uh, a lot of customers, a lot of revenues. And so we're, we we were basically a very credit worthy company. And, um, we, uh, we took this debt to market. And if, if, you were on the other side of the table and like, why wouldn't you buy this debt? Like, if you like Bitcoin, you have the ability, uh, by the way, the, the debt's not just yielding 75 basis points. The debt comes with, um, with warrants or basically the ability to get paid in shares above $398 a share. So uh, what we were doing is giving the debt holders participation in the upside and we're giving them uh, security on the downside So if you wanted to buy Bitcoin, you could buy this debt. You have all the upside of Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes to the moon, you're going to get paid off because you have the equity participation. If Bitcoin goes to zero, you're going to get paid off because you've got the security of enterprise software. If Bitcoin just simply yo-yos back and forth and it goes up and down... These guys are going to arbitrage the stock. They're going to short it when it goes up. They're going to go long when it goes down. They're going to trade the volatility and sell the volatility. And that's good too. So in fact, there's really, why wouldn't you do that? Right? Like I said to some of these guys, if it was me on the other side of the table, I would club all my competitors on the head and I would take the entire deal for myself. Like it's it's a very straightforward thing. Do you think that,
1: uh, let's say big tech starts trying to do a similar move, do you see them being able to come in at an even lower uh, yield or coupon of 75 basis points? Let's say Apple wants to do something like this and they say, you know what, we're going to issue- They could borrow the
2: money for zero.
1: They could, they could borrow the money for zero and if they have some type of convertibility into common stock at whatever strike, um, they, could, they could basically drop the coupon down to nothing if they say they're buying Bitcoin with it. Do you see that as a real possibility in the future?
2: I, you know, like, I, I think we got to take this in steps, right? I mean, the first thing that's got to happen is people understand that public companies can buy Bitcoin and then they see that not only can you buy Bitcoin with, with your treasury cash, but you can also use debt to buy it, right? Uh, and uh, as people start to see this, then I think, um, then I think there's just um, a wall of money. I mean, that's an avalanche of money, but, but um, like, is it a specul- could Apple do it? Look, Apple could go and they could borrow $50 billion at zero and buy Bitcoin. But the truth is they wouldn't need to. They have $50 billion in cash right now. They have $100 billion in cash, which is de- uh, diluting at 15% a year or being devalued at 15% a year. So before Apple went to borrow money, the first stop would be, why don't they just actually convert their, their cash that's uh, debasing? Under uh, Bitcoin. I want
1: to double down or, on this. I, w- I want to take this even a step further just to hear what you think about this extreme example. Yeah. I okay. think that there's going to be so much demand for this at a certain point in the future, call it one year from now, that if you're a person, if you're a company that's going out there and saying, I'm trying to raise money, I'm going to buy Bitcoin with it, and, and we all understand the restrictions for people that are investing in the fixed income space, they, they can't invest in other things. But yet we got hundred trillion dollars in this particular pool of money, right? That's trying to chase after yield. So, could could we see a scenario where it's so competitive to to buy this issuance? I mean, I'm just looking at the issuance that you had. You were going after, I think it was like 450 uh, million. It was oversubscribed. It's 400 million. You were going after 400 million. It was oversubscribed to 650 million, right? So yeah. does does this change to? i'm going I'm going to issue a, a note, a bond, whatever it is, right as far as duration goes I'm going to issue it at negative a hundred basis points just to keep the oversubscription to the to the point where it, what the amount you were actually going after. is this where we see- I think
2: you're enthusiastic <laughs> I, it's It's possible, but look, I think what's more likely is is you've got. A wall of institutional money, yes, hundreds of billions of dollars that's sitting in uh, fiat instruments, stocks, bonds, sovereign debt, and they have to just get over this mental block of maybe I should buy Bitcoin. And you saw that with Guggenheim, you saw that with uh, Ruffin or whatever. You're starting to see blocks of five hundred million dollars. They're just sitting out there. That will flow. Then I think. You're going to see private companies and they've got a wall of money. Then I think you're going to, you know, the next step is just for public companies like Square and PayPal and the like. I mean, they've got billions and billions of dollars in cash. There's $5 trillion or something in corporate treasuries, some large amount that's sitting in cash. Once they realize that they can put it into Bitcoin and keep it liquid, then you'll just see the wall of that money. They don't have to borrow to do it. They're just going, you know, you're going to see before they borrow money to do it. They, I mean, Apple's got 120 billion or some god awful amount. So, first, they'll just put 50 billion of that in, or Tesla's got 20 billion dollars. They've already borrowed it. So, if Tesla put, uh, you know, you don't need to come up with this idea of Tesla raises money at a negative interest rate. If Tesla took the 20 billion that's, that's basically melting right now and put 10 billion into Bitcoin, they would triple it and they'd make 30 billion dollars in the trade in a hurry. So how about a simple idea which is Tesla just take the money that's melting and put it in bitcoin and triple it. And then at that point everybody else does it and it's well, and, and then there's there's other people that can do other things but that's just such a simple obse- simple idea right now that's right in front of everybody's face. Well, I agree with you on
1: that. I guess this is this is the lens that I'm looking at it in. So I buy into the stock-to-flow model. Yeah. The stock-to-flow model suggests we're going to be over 100,000, call it September to October, whatever timeframe, end of 2021, we're going to be at 100,000 on this. I'm looking at how the market's already reacting to just us breaking 20,000. We're seeing he- headlines on CNBC, is, is the dollar doomed with crowns on Bitcoin, right? All of these things, we, we have Paul Tudor Jones, all these people are, are are owning it right now. The headline's out there at 20,000. What in the world is going to happen on the 24-hour news cycle, on the 24-hour business news cycle when Bitcoin goes through 100,000, potentially here in nine months to 10 months from now? And so when when I look at that and I say, and I see that you're already putting out the example. You're not doing it with one or 2% of your, of your balance sheet. You're doing this in an all-in kind of such an example to what the power of this really is. right? And so when I look at all the money that's pen up in fixed income, yielding nothing, and it's to the tune of hundred trillion dollars, and it's almost like the barriers to get that money out of there is so high and so difficult for them to get the money out of that pool. And there's a way to do it and pretty much the only way I can find to do it is through a corporate balance sheet kind of move by issuing debt that's convertible. I just don't know how you're going to be able to keep the lid on that type or the genie in the bottle on that trade come a year from now if Bitcoin's going through 100,000.
2: well, it's. Let's think about the ways that this money is going to move though uh, and all the the let's talk about the layer cake of money okay so there's uh there's individuals family offices uh, you know and uh tech entrepreneurs, and privately they can go buy bitcoin and they're they're the early movers then there's the hedge funds um you know like the Guggenheims of the world um and after they get their head around it, you know, Paul Tudor, John Stanley Druckenmiller, ben, Bill Miller, they can put it in their charter and they'll buy some, and they talk about 1%, 2%, 3%, and they'll start to move. But you know, there's something that keeps them from buying 10% or 20%. The first year, they'll dip their toe in at 1% or 2%. Next year, they could amp that up by a factor of two or four. So in 2021, the simplest way we grow is at some point, Bill Miller and Paul Tudor Jones and Stanley Druckenmiller say, you know, this worked really well, but why did I buy three times as much gold as I bought Bitcoin? Because Bitcoin performed 200% up and gold was like up 10% or 15 or something. So when you, when you transition from that idea that uh, Bitcoin is a great idea to the idea that it was really stupid of me to invest in something which underperformed, you would see two, three, four, five x that money coming from those investors. Now, there's another pool of money. The next pool of money is, is people that can buy publicly traded stocks, <clears throat> and, and you know the money's locked up in retirement funds like 401ks. Uh, there's a lot of uh, investment funds that can buy public stocks, and they can buy a GBTC. They could buy MSTR, but they can't buy Bitcoin. They, they just can't. Okay. Lots and lots of that money. Ask, you know, what can, what are, what are they looking for? Companies with Bitcoin exposure. PayPal, Square, Grayscale, MicroStrategy. Uh, you know, there's a dynamic there. And the dynamic is, well, big, companies that have a Bitcoin strategy, either on their balance sheet or on their P&L or both, like MicroStrategy is strong on the balance sheet. Square is strong on the P&L, you know? There'll be other companies that'll come, Coinbase will come public, right? They'll be strong on the p and maybe. You know, interesting question is, will Coinbase actually put Bitcoin on their balance sheet? Big question. Coinbase can do an IPO, raise billions of dollars, and buy Bitcoin with it. Will they? This is my plug, Brian yeah. Armstrong. <laughs> I hope you do.
1: You're nuts um, if you don't.
2: But, you know, uh, you're going to see more and more of that happen. That's another part of the layer cake. Then you have companies that can do debt. Uh, companies that can invest in debt. There are a lot. two hundred convertible funds, and they invest in debt. That's all they can buy. They can't buy the equity, quote unquote, too risky. By the way, people that buy equity, if they invest about Bitcoin, they say, "Oh, I can't buy Bitcoin," quote unquote, too risky. Okay. So at the end of the at the end of the day, you know, one layer is the hodlers with their private keys, you know, running their own nodes. And there's a lot of people who say, oh, that's too risky. And there's another group of people buying Bitcoin on Square Cash and on PayPal or buying it through Coinbase, less risky. And there's another layer buying Bitcoin through institutional funds like Grayscale or the like, less less risky, but still too risky for the equity people. Then there's another layer of people that'll buy the tickers like Square and PayPal or MSTR or GBTC. Then there's another layer of people that'll buy the debt. The convert debt, and then the, you know there's also secured debt. Maybe at some point people will start to do secured or convertible debt that is uh, invested in Bitcoin. All of these are different buckets of money. You've got um, you know, you've got insurance companies like Mass Mutual, and they've got the two hundred thirty billion in their general fund. You know, if they decide they can start to buy an investment grade asset. And, and anoint Bitcoin as that investment-grade asset, then there's no reason that number can't go up by a factor of a hundred or a thousand, right? Um, so, so what we have is, I guess, about seven layers of money, and and I I've met guys like you know, I'll met a I'll meet a person that runs a hedge fund and invests in uh, publicly traded companies. They're like, well, you know, I like Bitcoin, but. Uh, but I'm not allowed to buy Bitcoin per my charter. I have billion. I've I have ten billion dollars, but I can't buy Bitcoin. Like to change that requires I change the minds of a committee of twenty four people. It's a twenty four month process. We got to go back to all of our limited partners, and we got to redo our charter, and that's going you know, and then that's a three year process. So they like Bitcoin, but they can't buy it. But if they like uh they like a public company, nice or Nasdaq listed stock, they can buy that, and so it's not really a matter of right or wrong or orthodoxy. You just got to give them the on-ramp for the money to flow. And then I, you know, I literally met, I met people on my uh, convertible bond roadshow, not a roadshow, but when I had my meetings, person goes, yeah, I've owned Bitcoin since 2013. I love the idea. Yeah. We're in 20 million bucks. Okay. 60 seconds, five five minutes. uh, I'm going to give you $20 million. Yeah. You know, um, if I, why don't you buy Bitcoin? Oh, that'll take me three years. Like, we can't do that. Yeah, Three, I mean, you have to move a mountain to buy Bitcoin, but they can buy, they can buy the debt in uh, 30 seconds. That, in fact- That's Preston. what I'm telling you. I'm telling you, the, the rates are going to go negative. You got, in a year from now, the
1: rates are going to go negative because the oversubscription is just going to, there's going to be so much demand for it. It's going to be nuts.
2: It's, we're just doing the work of providing people the on-ramps. Yeah, You know, when, a mu- when Fidelity provides a Bitcoin, uh, a Bitcoin fund for consumers that you can, you, know, you can put your 401k into, then billions can flow. When they provide an institutional fund, then billions can flow. When companies come public and they offer you a stock ticker, then billions can flow. When you issue debt, then billions can flow. They're all just different ways to carve a channel from the asset ocean to the Bitcoin pond. And, and we're just carving that channel and we're making it easy for people. And it'll take some time, but as people get more comfortable with Bitcoin as an investment grade treasury reserve asset, and that's the key thing, then there's a hundred trillion dollars worth of problem here. I mean, a hundred trillion dollars of assets that needs to find a safe haven home. And, you know, people have been using sovereign debt as a safe haven.
1: So- History has taught us when a currency fails it it fails in a spectacular way and in a way where speed is of the total essence if this hundred thousand mark that we were talking about earlier happens in twenty twenty one I just don't know how um i just don't know how you're going to be able to keep the lid on it i don't know how speed isn't going to just fear is going okay. to just take over the market Look, and, I'm, and you seem to i'm think an
2: optimist yeah I'm an yeah. optimist there so i Look, if, if, if you're living in the Weimar Republic and you're, you're, there is no alternative, you've got Weimar marks, then you're going to have a complete collapse. But in fact, if you're living in a modern society where people have options, what's more likely to happen is as Bitcoin price goes up, money flows into it, uh, price discovery returns to these other markets there's a check and balance on, on behavior, and then people start to react to it, and they start to act more rationally. So I would like to think that um, in, a, in a marketplace where there are rational alternatives, the, bit, the Bitcoin is a stabilizing influence, and people go, oh, like, for example, when a bank sees a billion dollars go out the door, they say, I guess I better treat my customer better. What, why is it they're leaving me? Oh, I'm not offering Bitcoin, so I'll offer that. And then when a hundred billion flows out the door, people notice. And when a trillion flows out the door, someone says, why is a trillion moving? Oh, well, because the currency is collapsing. Maybe we ought to do something about that. Maybe we should stop printing money. So, you know, I'm going to continue to print a trillion dollars a year and buy bonds because there is no inflation. Well, if the money starts to to move and people start to see that that's a dynamic, maybe I'll slow down on the money printing. Like in the Weimar Republic, there was no Bitcoin, right? I mean, that's why that went to zero, but there's Bitcoin here and Bitcoin's an antidote to a problem. And so I think an optimistic view would be as the price goes up, it becomes more appealing and then more people adopt it. It'll keep going up. Price discovery will return to the markets. People will start to act more rationally in the political sphere, and they'll act more rationally in the investor sphere in a constructive, peaceful fashion. That would be a good outcome.
1: I, I totally agree with you there. That this needs to take p- place in a manner that's uh, controlled, in order for there to to avoid the whole civil dis- unrest and all that kind of stuff. But as far as the the governments around the world being able to pull back on their printing, as soon as I mean, you know, I know the printing's going straight into the fixed income market, which is keeping the interest rates low. If interest rates start coming up, the value of everything on the whole planet starts to erode in a in a rapid way, right? So my argument against, not that I want this to happen, but I guess what I'm trying to do is frame the reality of what I think's going to happen. I don't necessarily know that the government can become f- responsible with their monetary policy because it makes... The, the value of everything unwind, right?
2: I don't, I don't know. It's, I don't think it's that constructive you know to speculate about the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> I, so like to, I like look, that. I like that. Think, I think we should just focus upon what's constructive right now. And what's yeah. constructive right now is Bitcoin is a monetary network. Apple computer can make $100 billion if they plug into it. Tesla can make $20 billion if they plug into it. The individual dentist, doctor, baker, lawyer that's struggling to, to protect their economic well-being and create prosperity in the future can benefit by plugging into it. As more and more companies and individuals plug into Bitcoin, their lives will improve, their lot will improve, and they'll be able to escape the path to ruin, which comes from attempting to grow faster than the rate of monetary expansion. And I think- what, what we should be doing is we should be giving people, you know, a clear, peaceful, constructive way for them to save their companies and to save their, their businesses and to, and to protect their families and protect their well-being. And, um, and the Bitcoin monetary network is that constructive, yes. you know, exciting thing, right? I mean, I, I, I don't think we're going to get to the point where governments collapse and taxation ceases and we all have to go get a, a rifle and ammunition and antibiotics and operate on ourselves you know I, I don't i'm not really planning for that uh, i don't think it's that relevant uh, i think what's relevant right now is the bitcoin is big enough for like billion dollar funds to take a position in it for you to take a billion dollar position when it goes to 50,000 you can do it with 2 or 3 billion when it goes to 100,000, you can do it with 10 billion, right? Uh, companies like Apple and Google, when they start to see I can move 10 billion in and out of it in a day or two days or three days, then they're going to get interested. And as it marches up, it's going to be a solution to bigger and bigger companies. Then it will be a replacement for a sovereign debt. It's not a replacement for safe haven sovereign debt now because you can't buy $2 billion of it in a minute for example, I've done a trade, I've done trades on the 30 year debt. And I've I've done $150 million trade on 30 year debt where I shorted it. Like I did it in March. I shorted it when the swap rate was 72 basis points. Okay. Someone's going to loan me money for 30 years for 72 basis points. So I thought, okay, I'll take that trade. It was a $150 million trade and it took 15 seconds. Preston, and it didn't move the market one basis point. Yeah. I mean, it was 72, maybe 71, but that was, you know, and that was my margin for what I wanted to move. So if you could buy $150 million worth of something and not move the market one basis point, that's liquid. So the sovereign debt market has that liquidity. Bitcoin, as it gets bigger, right? The number you want to keep your, your, your eye on is. What's the daily liquidity? Like, you know, can you, can you buy and sell 4 billion a day, 8 billion a day, 1 billion a day, 20 billion a day? As the daily liquidity gets larger, it's safe haven investment grade uh, asset status gets better. Mm. When you're a big insurance company, you're going to want to be able to buy a, a billion of it or liquidate a billion of it quickly without moving the market easily. And so where I think what's going to happen is it's going to grow at some rate. And you know, it, e- you either need to solve the problem of on-ramps for consumers, which is what Square and PayPal will do and what Apple and Facebook and Google can do. When that happens, a billion people can buy it with a mouse click or with a finger click that by the way, that's Mark Cuban's like criticism, like show me it's easy to use. Right. Well, the answer is Have you not like, checked out Square, Mark? I mean, like, Square and PayPal and Apple, and th- they're going to make it easy to use that are making it easy to use. So, so that's one thing that has to happen. And on the other side, what has to happen is just these hedge funds and these institutional investors, they need to take a billion dollar position. And I can count like three or four of them that are about there now. And once you get to the point where you've got 20, 30, 40 funds that have taken a half billion or a billion dollar position, Bitcoin starts to trade in an area where there's 5 to $10 billion of liquidity a day and the volatility goes away. When I can go and I can sell a billion dollars of it in an hour and not move the market, then that's the point at which the Facebooks, the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples of the world will say, I guess we can do the treasury operations with this. They probably won't be the first, but it, unless, they, unless they really, Tesla might be because they take risk maybe, but more likely, it'll be mid-sized companies that have 500 million, 250 million, 800 million lying around, and they'll start to move into this because this is accretive to them. And we'll get this positive feedback loop. You know, like companies will do it, their stocks will go up. Other people will say maybe it's not so scary. They'll do it. The hedge fund guys will do it. They'll make money, and then they'll then they'll real, they'll go from fear to greed. First, they thought I'll do a 2% and I made a bunch of money. I'm afraid it'll work out badly. Then they'll go like, crap, I lost money on 98% of my portfolio because I invested in garbage. And maybe instead of 2% good, 98% garbage, I ought to actually move to 10% good and 90% garbage, right? And (laughs) I mean, by the way, 10% good, 98% garbage would be five times as much money coming from institutions as they're coming now, right? Yeah. So, so, all that starts to happen. And as that happens, as all of these companies and investors buy into the network, you're going to get their lawyers and their lobbyists and their lawyers and their lobbyists are going to defend the network. And they I mean, you've got PayPal is going to protect the network. Square is going to protect the network, right? You know, you're going to have anybody that ever invested. If you have a billion dollars of Bitcoin, you think you're not going to pick up the phone and call your congressman or Senator and say, don't F with this. Yeah. So that, you know, that happens. And then the political dialogue is going to evolve. And right now there's one view of the world, but the, but, but Bitcoin is going to, in a constructive way, infect everybody's minds and hopefully it'll get them thinking about a different view of the world and, and, uh, and that'll be a good thing. So I'm optimistic that, um, that as this spreads, this could be a force of good. And, um, and it, there's no reason why it won't grow faster, but it'll be progressive. People have to get over the technical challenges, the charter challenges. You know, like one, one narrative we hear a lot is, guy runs a billion dollar fund or a multi-billion dollar fund. Okay. He likes the idea. First, he's going to buy some on his own account to get his feet wet, to to get used to it. How does this work? Okay. Now I'm comfortable. Now I'm going to bring my fund into it. Like me, Michael Saylor, what did I do? I buy it personally. I understand how it works. I get comfortable. Then I go back and I talk to my board and I talk to my officers. And then we could do, do all of the due diligence and, and, and we work through the accounting and the regulatory issues and the corporate governance issues and the research to figure out how operationally, security, how we do it, right? That's a 12-week, 24-week delay. And so a lot of these things, there's a three-month, six-month, nine-month, 12-month delay. There are, there are funds that have you know, hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars they've got on their agenda, like somewhere in February, they're going to have a meeting to discuss Bitcoin, you know? And so when they have that meeting to discuss Bitcoin, then three months after that, six months after that, they might start to move. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, right? Because everyone listening to your podcast has a chance to continue buying this stuff, right? You're going to get in ahead of a wall, successive walls of money that are going to come wave after wave. And, uh, you know, when, when it gets to the point where it's $10 trillion, it starts to work for small, you know, for small nation states. And when it gets to $50 trillion or $100 trillion, it starts to work for countries. And, and countries, institutions, endowments, corporations, ev- everybody has the same problem at a different level. But uh, some of them don't recognize this is the solution yet. It's, it's human nature. You have to make it easy for them. And you have to give them a role model. So, when when I have a role model, when when another company like me did it, like Mass Mutual did it, Mass Mutual did a little bit. The next hundred insurance companies will say maybe we should look at it. Then Mass Mutual scales up by a, by a factor of ten. Other companies come in. Each of these is a little it's a little brick in in the road to something better. And so. I think, uh, I think we, we kind of get to sit back and enjoy the way it evolves. And, it's gonna, and, and each of these things that happen, they're going to be good for the network. Like every single time a new constituency plugs in the Bitcoin network, they're going to plug a functionality gap in the network. When, you know, when a Fidelity comes aboard, there's a, there's a pool of money that couldn't invest in Bitcoin except through Fidelity. You know, Coinbase is another pool of money. When Coinbase comes public, there's another pool of money that couldn't get into it except through Coinbase's public offering. Each of these things is is another, another extension of the network. The Bitcoin blockchain is the core base settlement layer, and there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of, call them, member banks. They're all just kind of member banks, and Bitcoin is the central bank in cyberspace, and, you know, there's, a, there's someone doing business in Nigeria. Well, that someone probably won't be my company, you know, and every country is different. They've all got political requirements, regulatory requirements, technical requirements, cultural requirements. You could almost think of Bitcoin as like, it's, it's the most, it's a massively franchise, it's a bank, a, a bank franchise or a bank franchising company, ultimately decentralized. Anybody can start their own bank. If you're a dentist, it's a bank for your family. If you're a small-time operator in Nigeria, it's a bank for, I don't know, 47 people in your village. If you're Square or PayPal, it's a bank for 100 million people. If you're Apple, it's a bank for a billion people. There, you know, if you're Fidelity, it's a bank for institutions. There's someone that's going to bank, you know, pension funds and endowments and other types of money. They're all just different banks and they all cater to a different clientele who all have different requirements, except that they all share one requirement. They all want to store their value forever. There's no one that'll tell you, I want to lose all my money, right? So everybody's got the problem. The, The answer is different. And, and what we see in front of us is we see this Cambrian explosion of innovation, all sorts of companies solving the problem in different ways with different instruments, and the market is going to sort out the winners and the losers. Some people are going to fail because they can't execute. Other people are going to try to bring a product to market and, and the customers don't want it. Other people are going to create a really good product and some regulator is going to shut it down. You know, it works in Wyoming, but it won't work and pick another state. In some case, I'll do this thing in Nigeria or Zimbabwe and they're going to they're going to cut me off. And, you know, the market will migrate to the next solution that works in Zimbabwe. Maybe we'll go from a centralized exchange to a decentralized solution for Zimbabwe because the politicians are hostile and maybe the politicians won't be hostile, <laughs> And it's going to be happening in 20,000 places every month differently as fast as it can happen. And that's really the beauty of Bitcoin.
1: Michael, all I can say is uh, my pencil was going crazy throughout this. I was taking a lot of notes. Um, I thank you for your time. And I know our audience to be able to uh, basically step into your thought process and to hear all these ideas around economic calculation, how you're thinking about it from a business perspective is so valuable and just, you're, you're so giving with your time. And I think that's the thing that not only I'm deeply thankful for, I know everybody who's listening to this is also thankful. So thank you for coming on the show. And uh, I would really love to do this again in the future.
2: Preston, thanks for having me. I think you're doing great work. And I, I just share your passion in educating the community I think 2020 is a catalytic year. It's full of challenges, but it's also full of opportunities. You know, and, and, and Bitcoin is such a paradigm shift in the history of money that I think this is a year where it's incumbent on all of us uh, to do everything we possibly can to catalyze constructive change. I think so many people can benefit by plugging into this network. If we show them all the different ways you can plug in the network, then I think,